second. Check it. Mr. Sound Guy in the booth. Hey, what's up? Please put your fingers on those faders. Push them all the way up. So I can holler at all of these people. So I can welcome them as they are entering. So I can let them all know what they're getting. And maybe I'll yell at them. Ladies and gentlemen, I have every intention of giving your disbelief suspension. Only requesting several seconds worth of your precious attention. So I can't hit the stage and warm it up. It's so cold. Here we go. So you thought you might like to go to the show. Let's have us a laugh. Now lift up your glass. And here's to what's hoping it lasts. I'd like to introduce you all to your opening act, yeah. Open up your eyes, open up your mind, open up your heart, open up your hands, open up, all right. Open up your arms, open up your wallet, open up your mouth, the opener has come to open up tonight. Last name, Dark Lord, first name, Schaefer, but everybody's always misspelling that shit when they're listening up in the paper. And if you cannot remember that, then you can just as easily be calling me S. The D to the goddamn D. I come from NYC, specifically from Queens. Always rock a suit on stage, never tease in jeans. I have released these CDs on which I've talked of my disease. If you get nerds hot nightly, well then you're a lot like me. See, I'm an oddity, an oddball, an anomaly, and I got all of my skills from my history, musical theater, and heavy metal and comedy. All of these rotten kids calling me labels that I've been unable to keep on onto me. Honestly, I've managed to amass a modestly sized following. Follow me. We're gonna go on an adventure, we're all in this together Now ready or not, here comes a heavy weather All aboard, but just to be warned, if we are delayed, I'm to blame Cause guess what, I'm still the sickest passenger on this train, yeah Open up your eyes, open up your mind, open up your heart Open up your hands, open up, alright Open up your arms, open up your wallet, open up your mouth The opener has come to open up tonight Waiting to see what will happen now. Who is the stranger that's rapping? You're asking. My fans have been nagging. When you coming back? And while I'm in the lab, is still tracking this action. And if you downloaded this record for free, then good for lucky you. And if you've already memorized all of the words, whoop de fucking do, dude. Nah, I'm humbled and honored and grateful, and all of the rest you'd expect. But I am so old and so cranky at times it is so hard to hide my contempt. Please don't take it personally if I am currently, if I should scarily snap back. In my defense, I already warned you all, I'm a very bad man. And I've had struggles with drugs and lots of weird issues with sex, it's true. Just Ask my therapist and my army of exes too Callous with my family, a jackass to my friends But I'll never change, I'll never apologize And I'll never attempt amends But back to the show, so now that I have been released from my cage I page your headline, show them to their place upstage As I rap and I point and I sweat and I spit and I swear and I kill and I shout Then drop my mic, light my piano on fire and bounce them out Yeah! Open up your eyes, open up your mind Open up your heart, open up your hands And welcome to the Crash Chords Podcast. We're going to jump right into this week's episode because I'm really excited that Schaefer the Dark Lord is here. Hi! I'm Schaefer the Dark Lord. I'm here. He's real. <laughs> he is real. He's I told re- you guys. He's not a figment of your imagination. For those of you who don't know, that's been a running gag that he is not real. We've repeatedly bothered Matt about that. To be fair, and the listeners know this, I have became obsessed with Schaefer when I first heard his music. I was a huge fan. I'd done a 
written interview for the website back before we were even recording, and uh, I've been bugging him while we were recording Staten Island to come on the show, but it's Staten Island, and I don't blame him. I'm also very elusive. He is so very elusive. It's, it's uh, difficult to pin me down, because uh, I, I'm always trying to get out of obligation so that I can hide from everything. Yes, but seeing as this is a podcast, you may still not be real, and we've hired an impressionist. It could be. It could be also your entire audience is collectively having the same dream. That is less hard to believe. I'll entertain it. <laughs> I could think of a couple of others. Most, my favorite one is actually one of us is having a stroke and pretending to be two people at the same time. Uh, um, moving on. More hard to believe. <laughs> Schaefer is also completing our uh, trifecta of getting all of the epic podcasts on here individually. I'm headlining. You are headlining. You are I, the final one. In your face, stunning and Lugo. <laughs> so there. I don't know. Lugo's going to be on for a third time. And he celebrates that he's been on the most. That's, yeah, right. that's he, a return engagement. Uh, is he going to be doing another one of these? The, yep, the, yeah. Of the long form bringing an album? Yep. I, well, I would like to bring a second album. I just want to keep following him. So, so we'll alternate you guys. I get the headlining. Yeah. There you go. Okay. <laughs> All right, we'll bring you back. Yeah, in the, in the new year, we'll bring you back and you can be the headliner again. Great. Lugo Excellent. episode 19, Lugo episode 72, Charles Stunning episode 95, and you episode 115. Wow. That's... It's a, it's really impressive. <laughs> it is, actually. Just, you know, just, hey. That's why I don't remember them now. I don't I bother. I can't remember the guests on 25 episodes of our <laughs> podcast. <laughs> it's true. And you've had Correction, Charles guests. Stunning on episode 95 as half of Afterbirth Monkey. Therefore, it didn't work. Oh, yeah, no. Technically, she wasn't the sole headliner. That's true. She was half can't, of Afterbirth Monkey. So, count. I know you're going to be seeing Charles. Wasn't soon. representing the podcast. She has to come back on. Okay. I'll relay the message. Yeah, okay. Do that. There you go. Um, so, our album this week was chosen by you. Yes. Um, and it is? It is the Beastie Boys 1992 record, Check Your Head. And just a little bit about why you chose this record. Uh, the Beastie Boys are, I I even said in this interview, you, you, you alluded to the print-based version of this before you started the podcast. Yes. And we did an interview a long time ago. Yeah. And I believe I told you then, and anybody I've ever been interviewed by, that... Uh, the Beastie Boys are my favorite recording artists of all time. Yes. Um, Check Your Head is my favorite record by them. And that's why I chose that one. And I also feel it doesn't get the, the same kind of uh, fawning accolades that, say, Paul's Boutique gets universally by any hip-hop enthusiast. I feel Check Your Head is a little bit more special. And that's why I selected it. Excellent. So you think this is primarily remembered for its crowning single? This one, I I think it's primarily remembered because it it created a template for which they created their next two records. Um, they are they they experimented with different types of of uh, song crafting on this one. There's some there's live instruments. There are some of the the jams. The um, but then there's still like some of the hip hop heavy party songs. But then there's still kind of the druggy trippy, uh, you know, atmospheric numbers and. When they did Check Your Head, it was the first time that they'd had that kind of dynamic um, uh, vari uh, variation. Is that the word I'm looking for? Uh, I definitely yeah. heard variation in okay. this album, so I'll, I'll, so I'll buy that. But although, as a group, how far back did they go? They go back to, they were, originally they, they were putting out uh, punk rock records um, in, I believe, 82. 83, maybe. I think 82. I'm going to go with 82. Um, they... They put out a number of uh, punk rock records. It was a different lineup. Um, originally, only Mike D and Adam Yauk were in the band, and then there were two other members. 
Gotcha. See, I don't know why I went into this thinking like this was Beastie Boys, you know, in their infancy, but obviously they've had quite a bit of uh, experience as of this time, and it shows right up front. I was glad to see that. Yes. I was expecting some kind of album of adolescence. I don't know why. I don't know well, why either, because they'd had a few records. A lot of people perceive the Beastie Boys that way for some reason. They think of this just like, you know, it's having a good time partying out. So, sure. you know, well, that there's, was their there's single always that personas. worry. Like, a lot of their singles were very party-centric or just very high energy. Yeah. So... I can see that. But at this point, they're in their mid to late 20s, and they've already, they've done, they've done a lot of touring, um, and, and they've been on top when they were kids with, their, with License to Ill, and then they were applauded by critics, but kind of denied by um, an audience when Paul's Petit came out. So they kind of, you know, young, arrogant kids became, like, put on this pedestal really quickly, and then tried to do something smart and got kind of knocked down. So they, they're already yeah. a little bit uh, world-weary by this point. Gotcha. Jaded? Not so quite they were, jaded. They were, they were facing little, my critique as of that time. Yes, <laughs> precisely. Um, which makes it especially uh, uh, horrific that I'm doing it now. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> Since I think they've grown beyond it. Well, it's, you're actually kind of fitting for it because the people who listened to this record were probably as surprised as you were when you just recently heard it for the first time because you had preconceptions about the Beastie Boys. That said, I'll say I'll say some some overall things here. Just as we go into Jimmy James, I had never heard this album front to back before. I had heard the crowning single, but it's clear there's been some impact here. When I'm confronted with sort of a whole culture as of these first few sound bites, because I don't have a huge hip hop background myself, so I look for very specific things in the genre, things that have to kind of punch me in the face in order to breach this wall. One is atmosphere, and two is meaningful lyrics. So I'm very quick to the trigger when I hear a generic backbeat that doesn't really place me anywhere and when I hear words that are just spoken for the sake of it. So there are exceptions to this rule, but those are my thoughts going in. That said, first track, the atmosphere kind of bombards me. I was feeling really nostalgic. I wanted to kind of be back in 1992. That's already some major points going toward this album. Well, the album starts with uh, an introduction that just creates the original identity of this album. The the first song, from the first few bars of the music, you you already are going to hear if you were at the time a fan of BC. As we said, this was a big turn. Um, they're taking their punk, they're already adding in additional elements of hip-hop and a uh, little bit of funk, even the first song. And this is a big game-changer for what they were doing, because before this time they weren't merging as much between it. Plus, the idea of, of, of the live feel of this first song is a big draw for me. Not just the introduction of, this is the new single, for, the, the first song of our new album, which was, uh, I believe... It's a, a sample of uh, Cheap Trick's uh, Surrender from Live at Budokan, <laughs> which is exactly... It starts with the... That record starts with that exact sample, and which I, I always thought was kind of a ballsy thing to start your just, your party jam hip-hop record with the exact sample from another... Like, from a rock and roll record from 78. But it creates... <laughs> so I was confronted by someone else's culture, in a sense. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which but, is kind of what their whole thing has always been. They're digging up all the records of their youth and then repackaging it for younger kids, basically. Well, that's just the thing. The DJ work on this album is spectacular. I, I thought that that was... I mean, that's something that I didn't... DJ 100%. Hurricane. Yeah, I didn't expect it, 100%. I mean, again, I think of them more as the quintessential... <clears throat> kind of a quintessential rap rock group sort of i mean a lot of people see him that way but yeah you know like I, a, the dj the... work is kind of a separate thing unto itself this was also if i'm not mistaken the first album they were playing their own instruments as well yeah they had uh they played like a couple of loops that had been sampled and then turned into songs on paul's boutique but this is the first time they were playing full songs 
uh, or yeah, entire compositions uh, with their own instruments, and not counting their obviously their early punk rock stuff. And lyrically, this also introduces the fact that they're changing their sound as well from the first lines. People, how you doing? There's a new day dawning. For the Earth Mother, it's a brand new morning. They're they're already putting out there. We're doing something different. I like this. It's ballsy. The Earth Mother. Yeah, it's just the Beastie Boys go cold. Well, it, no, this is actually kind of the time when MCA started uh, studying uh, Buddhism, um, ah. which became like a big part of him. As the years go on, he just he starts distancing himself from their their wild, reckless party boy days a little bit earlier than the other two guys. And he mm. gets it gets very deep. There's like one MCA oh, he, ended he up was getting, the Lennon, that's cute. He ended up getting like the one sort of like Buddhist themed song on every record to yeah. uh, to kind of express that. But this was he's this is really when he'd started doing that too. An interesting thing about that first song, Jimmy James, if I could just add this. Is that song features there's there's another version of that album that's available on a single. But the one that made the the album, it's there are samples of three different Jimi Hendrix songs in it, and uh, they were down to the wire. They'd gotten, they'd cleared the samples with Jimi Hendrix's estate, but they, the the estate also wanted um, licensing on top of that. I think that was the deal. No, that was something else. Anyway, they they had got. Um, we'll take care of it in post. <laughs> <laughs> Jimi Hendrix Estate fought them for those samples. So at the last minute, was the record was ready to be pressed, they went in and replayed those samples with their instruments, and then sampled and reassembled the song. Interesting. And actually, I was going to make that up later, uh, make that point later on. But I do see a, a great, I don't know, influence of of Hendrix and specifically like. Foxy Lady and things of that era of that style of music in this album. Sure, grindy, distorted, trashy kind of sex rock. Yeah, yeah. like the some of the acid rock of the seventies. Beyond that, there's something else I noticed about the atmosphere, which I was really enjoying. You get this sort of backbeat that sounds like it's it's kind of in the distance. Kind of like I'm not immersed in the party here, but that I'm sort of peering into it from around the block oh. or from across a chain link fence. There's this this like kind of concrete atmosphere to this album, which is you know, it's kind of lost in anything modern hip-hop now. Everything's so clean and clear-cut. I feel like that rawness is a little bit gone, which seems kind of like a cliche thing to say, especially for a, a non-hip-hop guy. Man, it's lost its roots. But <laughs> but that said, I really like that, that raw sound. I, I think that that was something that really held up the culture of uh, 80s, early 90s hip-hop. It's, it's an interesting kind of aesthetic choice for the whole record. Everything is kind of muddy and yeah. distorted vocals are, are all this this is when they start really going crazy with the distorted vocals um but even the beats they aren't the really crisp kicks and snares that even hip-hop at that time still had and and has now it was everything's kind of like in this layer of like fuzz yeah um, well that, you do get sort of a, a little bit of a crispness i would argue to the, to the drums themselves but the texture isn't limited there because they make frequent use of bongo drums throughout this whenever they're going to like a funk riff so they're they're not just like pigeonholed in their rhythms it's all over the place it's coming in from the right ear from the left ear that's not something that i'm usually privy to on on hip-hop especially even from this era come to think of it what i really liked about this record too on the intro is like you said it puts you kind of in a mood immediately yeah like there's no illusions to where this record's going it kind of puts you in that place immediately and from that live sample to the immediate work and the instrumentation it just kind of give that fuzzy feeling like but it's a comfortable fuzziness like yeah, yeah i can groove right into this yeah but i'll argue there i'd say that it, there it, there are illusions as to where this album is going because as of this first track even though i'm like you know immersed in the nostalgia sense i'm not 
I'm not confronted with the funk yet. Oh no! Yeah. I'm well, like that... we're kind of giving away that spoiler here. That's coming up later in the album. <laughs> well, that's no, no, not going to throw in a bunch that's... of punk rock numbers at you all of a sudden. Well, that's yeah. the, the, it is the next uh, next track right away. Funky Boss track two. We're getting funk, and this was one of my favorite tracks for the percussion work that's done with it, especially as you said the bongos. Just the 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 Wait, he, he said bongos. I missed that. No, he said bongos. No, yeah. I did say there oh, are bongos. I missed, I missed that. But all the, kinds don't of be fooled. All over it. <laughs> yeah, and it's that mutability that they were putting in there that really did change um, the landscape of what they were doing here. Because more punk in in Jimmy James, you also have lyrics. Funky Boss is a pure musical exploration of what they're doing here, and the fact that it's not a punk, that it's a funk, that you're that you're doing it, a different it, genre. It's punky it's, funk. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's it's extremely enjoyable to get that kind of a follow-up to an introductory track. It sounds to me, I always thought the Funky Boss kind of sounded like it was a song uh, that should have been scrapped. Um, I, I love it there, but it sounds like they were recording and they just started jamming and they started like improvising those lyrics because there isn't there's not really a song there. No, there's, there's not it's, much. And the not only did they boss. not only did they keep it because it's incredibly fun and so fun to sing along with when you're driving around listening to it. Um, but not only did they keep it, it's the second track on the album. Yeah. It just kind of I always felt that that kind of um, expressed kind of we're going to do whatever we want around here and uh, on this record and you're just gonna you're just gonna sit and take this. You're well, gonna go along for the ride. In a sense, that's true because it, I mean, it does come up later in the album. I mean, we have many of these instances where they're just sort of like stepping away to do what they want to do these little interludes. They they clearly function as interludes. But then again, there isn't so much of a a a clear arc here that you find any track to be like the pivotal track, except for the ones that they obviously tell you are the single that you can really interpret these as interludes. To be honest, because I'm partial to funk, I kind of found myself drawn to these tracks, especially because I didn't expect it in the first place. So I, I, I will go on a rant about this funk track, um, <laughs> chiefly just because of the nature of funk itself. I mean, obviously it's, it's driven by this whole the funk riff, the guitar funk riff, which is simplistic, but as far as I'm concerned, it is downright infectious in almost every single instance, at least to my ears. The drums here are also varied because of said bongos. It kind of resonates all throughout your ears, and then at the same time, there's this long intro that is featured in a lot of funk, sort of this somewhat long, playfully intimidating, steadily encroaching funk riffs that, that the, or intros rather, that funk songs tend to have, almost like you're about to get gang raped. <laughs> Okay. No, no, okay. I want your reaction. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm looking it was, for it that. was a bit of a snort. That uh, was my reaction. Uh, Dead silence from the other two. Uh, yeah. I, uh, I feel more like I, the building tension uncomfortable. is. Building tension, I'm about to get to a party. Yeah. <laughs> it I feels agree. like the saunter down to the dance floor. Yeah. Well, this is something regards. I'm saying perhaps, perhaps as like an umbrella across a lot of funk just because it. You know, people tend to associate it as that that porn guitar always uses funk. It's it's kind of sexual, just a little sexual, bit. Sexual, yes, but I wouldn't. And if you listen to the bass in this, I don't know if I I wouldn't use the word porn. Equate it with brutal violence. Yeah, I would equate it more to orgies or yeah, there is something more uh, consensual. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Well, part of this is also bent around a, a band that I used to know called Casanova Frankenstein, and a lot of their songs really did seem to broach the gang raping thing. Yes. Did they end right. up on a lot of Skinamax? 
But the same time, no, but this is no. <laughs> that was Actually, the no, I believe they, man, they very well it? could have. Uh, Ca- Captain Frankenstein? Uh, no, Casanova Frankenstein. Ca- Ca- Frankenstein. Yeah, he was the villain in Mystery Men, the comedy superhero movie with uh, Ben Stiller. Probably what they based it on. Yeah, probably what they based their name on. You would love their 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 logo. It's this it's this sort of, like, do you know you know uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000? Sure. Yeah, the Servo, right? Mm-hmm. The robot looks like Servo, only his head, instead of a glass dome, is like a giant disco ball. Nice. Yes. Anyway, that's my little aside. Okay. The point is, there. first of all, the sound kind of modeled after this deeply sexualized sound. And I kind of heard this, especially when you combine the, the, the bass with the drums. It is... I could get into it for those reasons. And frankly, if you're going to be partying, if you're going to be on the dance floor, even if you are sauntering, that can still be sexual. Oh, absolutely. There's no denial that it's sexual. Oh, no, I'm not denying that at all. I yeah. think I'm I'm suggesting that uh, gang rape is not sexual. <laughs> yeah. Perhaps. Yeah, that's 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 yeah, that's what we're we're angling at. I will say though that one of my things that I like when I'm for all the songs I always look up the lyrics just to make sure that I know what the lyrics are. And when you pull up the lyrics for the song, one line. Just one line. <laughs> Funky boss. Funky boss. Get, get off, off my, my back. back. And I just that's always amusing to see on the lyric sites cuz usually there's a paragraph, two paragraphs. Sure. One line. Yeah. Um, but it's a very straightforward track also. What I like about it is you get this vibe and this 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 feeling from the song, but it's not really the lyrics taking you there. The lyrics are essentially just another instrument to that point because they're repeating, you know, they're yeah. not really doing anything. They're riffing and, just like the other instruments are riffing. And, and it adds to that overall kind of emotion and content, and it kind of blends together. But it's got some diversity within that because yes. even though you have that sort of long intro, I mean, there's these moments of spice. These, like, for instance, the uh, the keyboard steps in. Just for like a couple of chords, it steps in to kind of complement the bass around this sort of brief chorus area, or like one moment within the chorus before it kind of retreats back to the standard bass line. And these are like these slight little orgasmic moments within this song. And yes, I will continue using sexualized no, uh, imagery fine. until you get this. <laughs> we get but it. This, we're, was... we're, this is not what we're disagreeing yeah. with. Yeah. Okay, fair we're right. not disagreeing with the sexuality. We're just disagreeing just, with just, the brutal, the gang rape. Yeah, the yeah. brutal, horribly violent way you're comparing it. Make Those sure you clearly have never been to a Casanova no. Frankenstein. No. Uh, oh. What? Okay, definitely preface this podcast, preface, preface. same thing, <laughs> with a, a not PG-13. Make sure we're, we're, we're R-rated on this one, because this is going to get dark, man. <laughs> the, uh, hey, by the way, those, order is for everyone. Those, those keys uh, that, you, that you mentioned that, that come in there, um, the, all the keyboards uh, on this are provided by Keyboard Money Mark Nishida, uh-huh. who a uh, long-time collaborator with the Beastie Boys. And also mm. the, the the songwriter and singer of the track Mark on the Bus later in the record. How about the organ also? Same business? Yep. Because obviously organ keyboard. Keyboard Money Mark. One of my favorite components. That's a of great this name. That's keyboard a, Money Mark. Keyboard Money Mark. I love that. Interesting. Very, you know very self-explanatory too. Just give him some wood and he'll build you a cabinet. <laughs> <laughs> what? It's from the record. No, I know. <laughs> okay. Um, moving on to... The next track. Pass oh, little, the mic. little little uh, oh, outro oh. just there. There was a little like they throw in the most random cameos, and I gotta throw this in now because it is exactly as fleeting as I'm leading it out to be. Okay. A reggae moment, just like on the tail end. There's like a reggae soundbite, just thrown in here before they move into the transition. I thought that was bizarre as hell, but they do other things like that, and they get more bizarre as they go. Yeah. yeah. It, every all this record and Paul's boutique, they're both they're kind of quilts of just everything that they grew up loving. Yeah, and they just they just took everything that they liked and just stitched it all together. And it. even if there's just like a little shred of cloth here and there, a little bit of like Lee Scratch Perry sample <laughs> somewhere, it it still made it in. Yeah, it, yeah, that that's, was my experience with this. A quilt is a good way to put it, actually. 
onto that, um, pass the mic before kind of go, goes back to the threshier side of things. Before we go on to pass the mic, something had occurred to me. This is the professionalism level of this podcast. You had introed our podcast with a wonderful song. It was the recorded version, of course. You didn't rap live here, although that would be exciting. Um, <clears throat> which was also the opening track of your record, Sick Passenger, that came out last year. Yes. And it's the opener, which um, is the first song to start the record because it does start with a session first your mm-hmm. therapy session with your therapist um which is such a wonderful narrative for that record wonderful in how ridiculous and <laughs> insane and twisted it is it but it gives you such a strong emotional connection to the record through line and the opener is essentially you before anything any of the therapy how you feel what you are this is how you feel this is your 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 dynamic and so and, and i'm kind of a dick I mean, I'm just, on that record. I mean, I am kind of a dick, but I mean, on that record, on that song specifically, yeah. I'm kind of. A... I was waiting for a quilt analogy. Yes. I didn't know what your segue was. Um, and so it was appropriate to open our podcast with that record, that track as well. Um, but now on to pass the mic, track three. <laughs> well then, okay, this is a much trashy. Uh, excuse me, trashier, thrashier is what I'm trying to get at. It's it's a little bit more straight up from a hip hop hip hop concert. It's not it's not as. Uh, it's not as as smooth, I guess you could say, as the rest of the funk stuff, but that's kind of what this 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 band does. They go back and forth between smooth and and in your face, like at the drop of a hat. Well, this song does undergo that. It has a personality shift. It sure does. It does have a personality shift later on, but as far as the beginning is concerned, it was like you had placed a microphone right in front of the PA system. Well, this is back yeah. more to the their their earlier style, their like you said, thrashier punk style. Uh, which is why Beastie Boys has always con- been considered just an alt-rock pillar at, at, for some things uh, of what they do. Um, heavy is is great when what they do it. This is one of the times though I'm going to start complaining. Vocals. Vocals, vocals, vocals. This is my biggest complaint with them. I can't understand so much of what they're saying because it's a faraway scream or it's going through a distorter, or there's just so much music on top of what they're saying. I'll give you that. A lot of this was a, was sort of lost in the background, and basically what this track is, it's, it's sort of your, your, your signature introductory track. It's kind of, well, past the mic, introduce each component of the band, and I'm going to argue, I don't really think this goes through as much of a dramatic shift as, as, as you're making it out to be. A lot of this is, from the get-go, you get one person's point of view. Past the mic, you get the next person's point of view. There are only moments here where it kind of comes together as this sort of unifier, and that is with the the bass steps in during the only moment you could probably pin down as a chorus. It was a pretty funky moment there, so I'll give you that it sounds a little bit smoother, but it's not stepping away from this being that sort of overt, you know, this is who we are kind of track. Well, and that's what it's serving. I mean, the yeah. purpose of this is a cocky introduction to this band. It's what be. we do, who we are, and this is, you know, this is our new record, this is what we're bringing to you this It's got to be in your face to that end. To be fair, Beastie Boys have, most of their entire career has been writing that song. Almost all of their songs are about the <laughs> yeah. fact that they're rapping. Yeah. They're uh, acknowledging, I am rapping, I am saying these rhymes, I have the microphone, I'm on the stage, here are my rapper friends, they're doing that thing. That is almost every song that they've written. There's never any preconception of a fourth wall existing. <laughs> There's, it's just, then it's just filled with, with just charm and references and charisma and uh, a little bit of relationship rudeness. among all of them. A little a, bit of rudeness. Rudeness, yeah, sure, they but snotty it's the punk very, rock kids. And, yeah, but it's the kind of rudeness that you're like, oh yeah, no, he's just... The jerk that you kind of fall in love with. Yeah. They don't have very many songs that have concepts. Most of their songs are really just this kind of, this hip-hop standard of, 
this is who I am and this is what I'm doing. There, I always call it uh, rapping about rapping. <laughs> Which they do a lot, actually, the yeah. more you think about it. They do do that a lot. But there's tons of punchlines and, and well, reveals and stuff lines. along the way, but it's still, that's, the that's, base, the framework. that's basically every Beastie Boy song. punchlines. I could be a stanza. My name is D, y'all, and I don't play. And I can rock a block party till your hair turns gray. So what you're saying? I explode on sight. I'm like Jimmy Walker. I'm dynamite. And now I'd like to pass the mic to Adrock. Is it Adrock? Adrock. Adrock, excuse me. Come on, do anything you like. So this is very cheeky. Yeah. At the same time, it's also a little bit nonsensical. I mean, I don't think you could get away with using uh, Jimmy Walker as a reference today, perhaps. Well, well but it was a little the... bit closer to it at that time. Yeah, 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 just a little <laughs> bit. I mean, it was, this was 92, and Good Times was in syndication in the 80s. Oh, yeah, yeah. So yeah. it wasn't that far. Yeah. It, it, but but I like that they do that. Like Because even though they do this, these introducing themselves songs over and over again, there's always a spin to it. There's always a twist to it. Mm-hmm. There's always... You know, a, a dynamic. I mean, like, even, like, I got into the Beastie Boys actually fairly late and then went back and downloaded and downloaded and bought everything. But, like, when Intergalactic came out and when Hello Nasty came out, like, I heard Intergalactic on the radio and went, what? <laughs> what is this? And then proceeded to go back for everything. And that, too, I mean, there's a, that song is mostly an introduction song introducing themselves sprinkled with sci-fi. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's all it is, but... But I think if you even, get into that from the Beastie Boys, that will bring you into everything else because there's the through line for most of their music. Even so, though, a lot of that kind of it utilizes the same thrash that I, I sort of projected at the mm-hmm. outset. But then we move on to this sort of unifier that I'm trying to get at here, and that uh, lyrically you find it in, well, on and on and on and on, I can't stop till the early morn, so rock, rock, y'all, tick-tock, y'all, to the beat, y'all, come on and rock, y'all. As of that moment, the bass sort of kicks in with this kind of like root fifth octave work from the B up to, uh, excuse me, from the B up to the D, down to the C, and then back to the B. Now, not that the keys are like key changes here are terribly important in a track like this, but if you feel it in B minor, then it's a first, a third, and then that's C, which is a flat two, very much like a spooky non chord tone on the way back to one. And that kind of leaves an air of mystery in this track. I think, I think at least it cropped up here when I heard it in the chorus. And I think it served an interesting. I, I'm not gonna go. I'm still not gonna go so far as John to say that it like flipped up the mood here. But it was a little bit of a twist that led me to believe that it was something outside of the everything you mentioned, Schaefer, about the kind of track, uh, the kind of sort of gather around. This is who we are. You know, they do that probably in a lot of their music. But, but it's I alluding know to that more routine. as well. I exactly. It alludes to more in a kind of. It, but see, it's 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 not something I can pin down necessarily. It's not like oh yes, there's an air of mystery that I know exactly what you're getting at. A lot of it is just goofy, but it's it's a musical shift that makes me not feel it in the same like okay, that's all right. I know who you are. Get to the point. It it leaves me wondering yeah. about what I don't know. But you know, well, it, I guess it there's makes a veil of much... mystery that I appreciate. And it's a truer mystery if you don't know what you're wondering about. Like you're True. truly steeped in a mystery of well, it was going somewhere. I just don't know where. And also just the fact that it is the at the unifying moment there, where it's the only thing I could consider to be a chorus. They all come together. They all drums sort of... drums break. Um, exactly. Every, t- every time that bass thing that you were referencing comes around, that's and that exactly. is yeah, it's the closest there is to a chorus. But there's no repeating phrase it's almost as though the lyric the the vocals are no are not a lead instrument on this song yeah that's actually that's actually a good point considering a lot of it is not very in the forefront as john mentioned it's not like you're really sitting there like ah i want to hear every word here it's more just the overall atmosphere and i guess that's why i was particularly drawn to what would otherwise be such a throwaway uh motif because it really is more of a signature focus it's like the whole track was building to that moment yeah 
Well, and I think that the way they sing, their inflection always lends to that kind of instrumentation in their vocals. Like, they're they're always kind of part of the sound that's coming at you. Yeah. It's never just flat singing. It's never, like, a standard sound. They, they like to be very energetic when they sing, I would say, 99% of the time, and that adds to an instrumentation of the song. Which is a different take on hip-hop itself. I mean, the, the defocus of the vocals themselves, of the lyrics themselves, really is what sets them apart in a lot of ways from... Even uh, their uh, their followers, even the people that copied and emulated them, uh, because when you have uh, less emphasis on what is considered the primary focus of your style of music, it it turns it. It allows for these moments where yeah, there's something that was built up to musically that you just kind of wonder about. It, it gives opportunities like this. To be fair, it was the only instance that that occurred in, and then it's kind of back to the beginning. So it's more of just like this this break in the middle. Um, but actually, excuse me, there was, you're right, the drums cut out, and I think the bass returns for duration of the second verse. Yeah. Yes. And it actually stays with it for a while. So it's not, it's not like it's just there and then it's gone. It stays with it, it's kind of for a transitionary period, and then it sort of bookends it by finally, it's like a crossover where they're both present and then it pulls away, and then it's just back to the same thrash as was present in the beginning. It's an interesting little breakdown, but... Um, it makes for an interesting song uh, set up altogether. They got sued for that song, too. Did they? Really? That was the one they got sued for the sampling versus licensing thing. I really I wrote this down. It's the the sample at the beginning that kind of... Yep. The, yep. the thing that starts at... I, uh, uh, it was a song called Choir by James Newton. And they sampled it, and they cleared the sample, but then uh, James Newton wanted uh, licensing rights on top of it, but a judge determined that the being that it's three notes and the sample is less than six seconds, <laughs> that they couldn't get licensing for it as well. Uh, so Newton versus Diamond, <laughs> Michael Diamond wins. Interesting. That's wow. setting policy oh, right there. Bits here. What's that? That's setting policy, because that's, that's sort of a, the standard nowadays, yeah, six the, seconds. Yeah. Interesting. It's funny, considering I was just reading about all the lawsuits that Tom Waits actually started the other day against all of his uh, the various people who tried to use his his songs in commercials, really? and even in various ways, like huh. just using six second samples, and almost in every case, Tom Waits wins. <laughs> so. Maybe maybe he has more money to throw at it. Hmm. I don't. Know. <laughs> I know nothing about Tom Waits other than his music. So no, well, he was one of those guys who just hates it being used in anything commercial. Gotcha. So so, and so are the Beastie Boys. Bingo. Yeah, that's true. They'd gone after people for using their stuff, too. Yeah. <clears throat> Actually, it was years before anything. Anyway, going back. Everybody rapping like it's a commercial. <laughs> <laughs> um, the next track, uh, track four, is Gratitude, which Gratitude. I like. The, this uh, is the spiritual predecessor to one of their monster hits, uh, uh, Sabotage, from yeah. the following record, mm. uh, the song that I think most people who don't really know the Beastie Boys, no I think most people know Sabotage. Um, I probably all those music rhythm games from the early 2000s that were so hot. Yeah, because it was in <laughs> all of them. This is kind of this, a similar thing where they're doing this kind of they're writing this they're writing a rock song. It's a rock song. It's not even a rap song. It is a and it's not a, it's not a punk rock song. It is a it's it is a rock song. More rock than yeah. Um, also, and it's they acknowledge this really well. If you ever see the music video for this, uh, they recreated. Uh, do you know the Pink Floyd concert film Live at Pompeii? Yeah, vaguely. Where they just Pink Floyd just set up their whole thing and. Pompeii and like in, in ruins and there's yeah, no audience yeah, and they yeah. just like shoot all these like tracking yeah, shots these sweeping shots of them standing in all these ruins uh, yeah they re they they the music video for Gratitude Gratitude is a recreation of that interesting 
that's actually it's almost a awesome. kind of an announcement by saying please notice that we are a rock and roll band in addition to we're not just a hip hop group well since you're I, the source of all these different sound bites though I gotta I gotta ask the, the, the sort of the creepy intro in the song before it kind of goes all out rock I was particularly drawn to what sounded like a like this plucked low piano string like someone just reached into the piano just oh, yeah. to kind of like give this 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 ring but then all of a sudden it just breaks and then it goes into the straight up rock but it's like you know they throw in all these little like eyebrow razors at the same time i want a little bit more of that but it's still i appreciate that they do it period yeah you know main riff is bass guitar being played like chords picking like, oh or yeah strumming, that's actually is... a lot here i guess that's a that's a common uh punk tactic that they pr- perhaps further to be honest, because I don't think I even hear um, hear that in punk to that extent. It's it's common for them to go kind of this like this bass distortion sort of thing. You hear that in a lot of punk music, but here it's again I go back to that analogy. It's just the the, the microphone being held in front of a PA system. It is so raw yeah. that it takes that punk style and it furthers that. So I was about to be a naysayer and say that it's not so much punk as it is like this mix of 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 rap and sort of distorted hip-hop but i think that's the main way that it it is derived from punk roots i like that they also go from a predominantly hip-hop sounding song at least in style with the funk and everything else um in pass the mic although it was mostly hip-hop and pass the mic to a rock song called gratitude so they're being you know braggadocio kind of in your face (laughs) hip-hop and then they're being grateful as a rock and roll band humble as a rock band band. yeah well aside from just the slowing down of the lyrical spit speed uh they also seem to be supporting their vocals a lot more in this song as well and that was i think what what really sets it apart genre wise between a lot of their other work in this uh, song, in this song, they're a rock band. They're a three-piece rock band, and Ad Rock is yeah. the lead singer. And yeah. as they it's sing, not, they're not doing their they're not doing their three-man weave of, of their of their rap lyrics. Uh, they they have they are a standard. It is bass, drums, guitar, and then of course a bunch of percussion, and then a lead singer. And Ad Rock is is the lead singer and guitarist in this one. Hmm. And it's just it's an interesting dynamic because I forget that they do that. I mean, I know they play live. When they played live, they would play instruments on stage too. If I remember correctly, I had heard that they did that. I had not ever that they actually did. Seen them. They but, would play instruments on stage. Oh, absolutely! They and, like half of their shows would be. They would have a DJ. They had a number of DJs over the years. DJ Hurricane was with them this time. I saw them on this tour, by the way. <laughs> I was 17 years old, and it changed my life. Okay, uh, but no, they would have portions of the set where they, you know, they would do like a number of rap songs, and they'd have their wireless mics, and they'd run around and they'd do their hip hop party jams, and then they would sit down behind their instruments and uh, they'd play some of the jam songs or some of the rock songs, or then they would kind of mix it up. And on some songs, like say, like one of them wouldn't be rapping, like um, uh, "Finger Looking Good." Ad Rock is not a rapper on that song, so he would be doing something else. He did some DJ work sometimes too. So. Yeah, around this time, they, they were playing these instruments on stage. And Gratitude, I mean, they played Gratitude on, uh, never mind, I was going to say they played on Saturday Night Live, but they didn't. That was Sabotage. <laughs> but it's interesting that they, they essentially assume the persona of a rock band as well. They're not just, they're, they're diverse. They're not just a group. rock band. Yeah. I actually heard Led Zeppelin within this. Like, oh, absolutely. I, straight up within this track. I mean, I could almost make that exception as, as what I said about punk before. I mean, frankly, that Led Zeppelin was doing that a little bit before punk. So f- I guess that's really the origin of what I was hearing, considering there was more rock in this song than any other track uh, up to this. Yeah. yeah. And I just yeah. for- I forgot until re-listening to this record that they have so much rock influence. Well, I mean, you know you hear it in those songs. There are Led Zeppelin samples all over uh, Ill Communication. Oh. Yeah. Or not Ill Communication, but um, License to Ill, the first yeah. record. Yeah. Also, a little interlude, cowbells and organ. Yeah. Yes, because those, like, those things go together. Apparently. Who doesn't like, well, no, who doesn't like cowbell? 
You always need more it's cowbell. A, but it's need. another form of percussion that they're throwing into the album. I mean, the sampling, the the, the just the very uh, the variety of pieces that they're using in here is giving them a lot of just texture. And that's one thing that and I really I really, really enjoy, enjoy in this album as a whole. It's just the different layers of texture they, they're throwing into each song. It, it seems very methodical. The way they try not to repeat themselves. The way they try to sample new ideas which eat, with each piece that they're producing. At this point, I definitely had that experience. I think it kept itself uh, remarkably fresh uh, going through it, um, which was much, much more than I expected, to be honest. Again, I think of rap rock, rap rock as being sort of in a little bit of a niche that people know and love, at least a certain degree of people love it, and I kind of expected an album of that. I didn't I didn't really expect all these other things. That's I mean, because you went into it thinking it was the Beastie Boys are a rap rock act, and they're not. They are well, a rap act and a rock act. Rack, yeah. See, yeah. yeah, maybe they're I guess that's the thing. Rock. But you would think from your from the singles, you would think they were one thing. You would think they were sort of that fusion. I mean, the singles do tend to be a bit of a similar sound, especially in the earlier years. In the later years, they branch out a bit more. I mean, like, with Body Movin' and Intergalactic, they threw a lot of ridiculous shit into those songs, especially in the remixes. Hmm. So it's like... But but the earlier songs sabotaged the song, you know, were very rock-influenced, so... But they were never blatantly doing what Limp Bizkit did, which was bad no. rap over rock. Like, it was... Oh, it's yeah. very different. Um... I think this is a good place to move on to track five, Lighten Up. Hey, oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, almost only funk instrumental, I guess. Uh, with a, with oh. a lot of tribal infusion. This is it's not instrumental. They, they do sing. There's one line. <laughs> one line. It's, yeah, it's kind of back to fucking boss. That still does... That does no, it's still an instrumental. line is, gotta lighten up, gotta lighten up, gotta lighten up right now. Yep. Repeat that. Gotta lighten up, gotta lighten up, gotta lighten up. Shine like the sun. And this, I love how that's bellowed out here, which is a really, really nice moment in this track, because you have that, that tendency where you feel like it's going to be repetition of the same exact line, and then all of a sudden that one little phrase, shine like the sun, is so much more melodic. It's, it's another one of those, like, crown jewels, even within this, like, tiny little microcosm that I often find in these tracks, in this album. It's also, uh, it's a nice little breather following Gratitude. Following the, the one-two punch of, of Pass the Mic and Gratitude. Oh, yeah. Then I you mean, finally get, you actually do get to just lighten up for a minute, because it has, here's... it has been kind of rough so far. We've been rocking out really hard in this little car that we're driving around rural Iowa and smoking tons of weed in. Yeah. If you're me, when this record came out. Um, so then Lighten Up comes on, and you and your best friend sit there, and you giggle with your half-cocked eyes, and go, yeah, man, I'm totally lightening up right now. You've all been there, right? I don't think we could explain this song any better than that exact comparison. This, uh, this my entire junior doing? year of high school. Oh, no, this came out in the spring of my junior year of high school, because this came out in April of 1992. Uh, my entire senior year of high school, and that summer. Whew! It was just, I, I, it was this record, or it was silence. That's <laughs> <laughs> a, it's a pretty stiff, t- tough potatoes. <laughs> now I listen to other stuff too, but I, my friends and I, are just really obsessed with this record. Yes. Interesting that you went so hardcore on a, on, on a track called Lighten Up. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> all things considered. This is the moment where we really break out with the shakers and the bongos. This yeah. is like when it's all crisp. Everything is yeah. so chill in this track. Um, and then that organ comes back, which I'm particularly drawn to. Along with the bass, I'm just, I am invested in this whole entire tone. This is kind of what, I, what is grabbing me on a fundamental level. Well, and I think it's what grabbed a lot of Beastie Boys fans, is this diversity in the sound. And, I mean, Lighten Up is one of those tracks also where 
you you do take a minute to lighten up and groove and with the sound and the things they sprinkle in really kind of draw you in. And here's another funny th- little thing. Like speaking of things that that are sprinkled in, you get sort of this strange murmuring effect. Now I don't know if that's not another one of those sound bites, kind of similar to the one you mentioned earlier that was at the uh, the beginning of uh, I forget what, what its track that was, but it seems it seemed kind of similar. It's sort of this distant murmur in the background. It sounds almost like a like a sleeping beast or something. Ah, uh, you know what that is? What is it? That is a straw in a McDonald's cup. Oh, that's awesome. Okay, yeah. considering that I had that crazy summer that you were describing, and that was this summer, yeah. and that was the thing that amused me, and I was ready to use that as a soundbite in uh, one they, of my own pieces it's almost of music. A, it's almost a throwback because they, they sampled that song, or that sound appears in uh, Shake Your Rump, the record before this, Paul's Boutique, uh, in, a, in, a, in a really kind of fun, like, little dancey little, little number. And I've always thought that when they put it in Lighten Up that they were, it was just kind of uh, an, a shout-out to their previous effort. I relate to this. I relate to that, man. That's what it is. No, no, seriously. It was that Dunkin' Donuts uh, Arnold Palmer culotta. And I got that. I was so entertained. I took a video of it, and it's just me and my friend giggling in the car. That was literally Arnold. one month ago. Arnold? You can't even say it. I can't even say it. No, it's fine. It's fine. If you never had it, you missed out, man. Season's over. Culotta? Switch to something more. Culottas. <laughs> um, from the, the mood setting, lighten up, uh, we go to finger looking good. Ad Rock has said that he does not like this song. I don't either. He's not on this song. This is, um, they also, this record also kind of started this tradition where there would be different, there would be like kind of, I don't know, deep cut songs that would have certain pairings of, of members of the Beastie Boys wouldn't have all three of them on it. Um, so this one is just Mike D and the MCA, um, and they're mostly rapping about how much they love and are good at preparing food. <laughs> yeah, it was interesting. Interesting. I mean, it's not a bad song by any means. It's just c- considering what we were getting so far, this song comes on, you're kind of like, uh, this what? one I feel like I got just... bigger buns than my man Paul Bunyan's. <laughs> yeah, this one I just feel like they were taking the same sort of framework they've done in the previous tracks and just weren't exploring it to the same extent they were it, it's previously. A, it's it doesn't have the same kind of fire behind it. I'll... It was layering instead of like really like reaching its potential, and that it was a little bit of a downturn. Now, I'll give you this. This was a lot more DJ work in this track. It wasn't as intricate. It was a lot more playful, but the playfulness, luckily in this track, was able to kind of just make up, you know, in a one-to-one ratio for perhaps the lack of, of what was intricate. I was also realizing at this moment that the bongo is is not just a novelty piece at this point. This is a staple of this album. This is sort of like the unifying uh, uh, soundbite, or the unifying piece of texture, as you will. And the rhythms throughout this track, frankly, I, I think were some of the most creative in the entire album. Hmm. Well, I also like though just with... the rhythms of the bongo drum. I mean, it was it was consistent. It didn't feel looped. It was it was newly invented every phrase. I, I like that. A lot of people like to cite that it's very modern to rap about things that aren't typical rap, like in nerdcore and, and, and other more modern rap. It's it's only now <coughs> that people rap about video games and what they did on the weekend, and it, it's. This song is them rapping about cooking and preparing food, yeah. which would be considered by now standards a very nerdy or nerdcore song because they're very passionate about the cooking. It's they very... were they were foodies, yeah, foodies before, before before there were foodies, yeah. And and this and this song really conveys that kind of uh, a sound that we have now, which I think is very funny that nobody goes back and goes that that finger looking good that was an, an early nerdcore hit. It's just you know it's just well, they did a thing that was not standard, but. 
But that's why I guess why I'm talking about texture just a little bit more so, only because the lyrics sort of are that like, this is a throwaway playful thing. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's almost just like a throw-in for this album, but the fact that they make it into this, you know, exploration of, of various different sound bites, various different textures, that's kind of what I'm drawn to, more yeah. than the lyrics themselves. The lyrics almost sound like they could just be superimposed over any other rap, rap song. But, the but that, would be, that the, would be a, re, a lesser rap song, in my opinion. The, the actual this content, in, in so many other songs, and, and this is a good example of them, that the, the actual lyrics don't seem to necessarily serve the song as much as the rhythm of the delivery of those lyrics. Exactly. You could basically be saying peas and carrots, but delivered with that that attitude and that... Uh, and. Um, Energy. That conviction, yeah, uh, is really what you know. Make, make <laughs> that irreverent conviction of theirs <laughs> gives you. Uh, that's the thing you can kind of sink your teeth in, I guess, on this one to go. But I still feel like it's. It does. It. It. Uh, it's not my favorite track on the record. Yeah, not fair enough. I, I mean, I, again, I'm just. It's one of those moments to kind of like throw in all the various things that they do. For instance, there's a sitar and tablas interlude, <laughs> and it's a considerable one. They break away almost every single instrument. They just drop it out in order to do this. In addition to that, there's sort of a chime that sounds like it's the beep that you hear when you leave your keys in the car that's used as a transitionary tool into... Uh, well, one little return of that same section, and then it breaks for another little period to go into Bob Dylan's Just Like Tom Thumb's yeah, Blues. An inexplicable Bob Dylan vocal sample. Yep. And the funny thing about the beeping, though, is I was listening to this album this week at work, last week at work to kind of refresh myself on it. Every time that beep went off, I thought something on my computer was beeping. Every time. I kept going, what's open? What program did I click? Yeah, I think I had the same experience. Yeah. And I was thinking about it, I was like, yeah. Because it, it was very reminiscent of like a technology-style beep. 92 like cars car. still used to do that, right? Yeah, I think so. Probably, yeah, my Oldsmobile Cutlass did. So, that's for sure. As far as I'm concerned, it is. <laughs> I think this is a good place to move on to the single of all singles, or at least one of them. One of Boys. Well, then, note a transition here. This is another one of those tracks that was so bizarre that it leaves you with this question mark throughout, and it ends on a dime. You yep. don't have to deal with it that fade stops. out. You don't have to deal with this kind of like, you know, psyched ending. It just it ends, and it's, it, I appreciate that abruptness. And goes right into so what you what you want. Yeah, uh, I to say that hasn't been said. Too many watches in the title. It's one watcher. So Uh, what you want? Oh, so what you want? So Uh, I told you when we did that interview for your for this the the text based version of this podcast a long time ago. Yes, or of the website um, that I had this very vivid memory of being twelve years old and seeing the premiere of the Beastie Boys music video for No Sleep Till Brooklyn from License to Ill, which was kind of a definitive moment in my life. That if there's ever a biopic made of my life. I want that scene recreated in like a sepia tone before the opening credits where I'm standing there just slack jawed staring at the screen looking at these assholes with electric guitars who are doing rap songs. Uh, I also have a very incredibly vivid moment of when I first heard So What You Want and it was when I saw the music video premiere for it. I'm 17 years old and I'm in Dubuque, Iowa for my older brother's uh, wedding. Who was in Dubuque, Iowa? <laughs> my uh, older brother was getting married in, in, in Dubuque and uh, I had liked the Beastie Boys, but I was in this very punk rock uh, phase, and the record hadn't quite come out yet, and I drove up with my mom, and we're in, we check into our hotel room, and I'm just miserable, because I'm 17, and I'm miserable everywhere, unless <laughs> I'm in, hanging out with my dirtbag friends and riding skateboards. So, Follows in the hotel room, and I turn, I'm just, just scowling, and I turn on uh, MTV, and uh, it, it, it was at the moment that they were premiering, uh-huh. um, uh, the music video for So What You Want. And then there are those three assholes who made that video that I loved so long ago. And now they're like, they're jumping around in the woods and they're all wearing these like like baggy pants with like the long belts that hung down and like thrift store t-shirts and stocking caps and 
their, their vocals are distorted and they're just shouting and jumping up and down in this weird, uh, like almost reversed color, chrome looking shitty video footage. It was just a bizarre and beautiful and wonderful and pretty much informed all of my fashion decisions for like the next five years <laughs> for better um, or worse the song the musically like it, the song is, it was just amazing uh, it, the, I mean I got the, I got the record that weekend um, and never stopped listening to it did you make Whew. the wedding yeah I went to the wedding okay just check I was the best man hmm. oh. yeah. were you an angry best man I was so angry <laughs> good. I was good. so angry I had long dyed hair like in my face and I just didn't want anybody to talk to me I, I just wanted to hear that song that I heard on MTV again because you couldn't just listen to it wherever you wanted at that point nope raw <laughs> beastie boys beastie boys fueled groom support yeah there you go I appreciate that. that. Well, first of all, going in, this this is the big single that we've been not so elusively referring to. That it's, I feel, yeah. at least as far as my 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 taste are concerned, going to into this, I this is what I expected. This is what I expected the whole album to be. And that's the funny thing because I wasn't adverse to the sound before. I mean, this is basically what I was going to exalt because this is what I consider to be the peak of their sound. I mean, it's got the hip-hop thrash. It's got that rawness to it. It's got the PA blasting. It's got these strung-out guitar riffs, which are particularly, which I was particularly drawn to. And this alone, again, I was ready to acknowledge it was creative in its own right. I mean, this is a sound that I don't think anyone really associates with anyone but the Beastie Boys. Yeah, there, there wasn't really a rap song that sounded like this before, and there actually still hasn't really been since. Yeah. There's something... Uh, there's something kind of chaotic and simple at the same time about this that is as became kind of like a definitive part of their sound. Yeah. And also, I mean, it's it's anthemic. It is the the personification of the attitude that they were presenting. It is anthemic in a way that only they can be anthemic. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's it's hard to say. Well, it's it's sort of like the attitude of the early '90s uh, for a lot of thirty and younger at that time. It 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 was just the purest, rawest form of what so many kids were thinking. Yeah, and it's yeah, and even its even its chorus is still kind of rooted in like a punk rock sensibility. Yeah. It's just, oh, but it's also still at the same time just kind of a non sequitur. Is again, most of these songs lyrically or conceptually at least are nonsense. Yeah, they, uh, they lyrically they're great, but conceptually they're it's just a bunch of ideas and references to the fact that they are rapping. Yeah, it they've never really bizarre. been storytellers. No, no, well, a couple of times. Yeah, uh, but. Not so much. Yeah, mostly it's very much it is things, ve- these things. It is very much a list of things and acknowledging uh, the fact that you are perform- uh, you are executing a rap song. The lyrics are about that. And that's very much this song, too. Well, yeah, I think you're, again, sort of blown away by the brashness of it all. Yeah. Uh, there's another thing that sort of I was drawn to, even though it only appeared a couple of times. But every single time they go into this, uh, this sort of, these sort of guitar interludes, they, they, they exit it by this sort of electric hum in the background that starts building and it gets a little bit more intense, I almost felt like I was being pushed off the radio dial at this point. It, it's, it's a little disturbing, you know, even though it only lasts for a grand total of perhaps five seconds, and then all of a sudden it's back to main verse. And every time you get a, you get a, a lyric sample that tells you, yeah, you can't front on that. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. That's parable. That's right, I forgot about that. That's... Yeah. yeah, you can't front on that. That's Indeed. right. You're right. listening to this weird thing and you enjoy it. <laughs> Because you work for us. And with that, let's move on to the next song, The Biz vs. The Nuge, which I I 
thought was one thing, but apparently is not. Uh, I had the, the same experience Lord. and had to renumber all of my notes later accordingly because I thought it was part of the next track. It is just an intro counted as its own track. It No, it is the Biz versus the Nuge <clears throat> because the vocals are provided by Biz Marquee and the guitar riff is a sample from Ted Nugent. That is uh, an awesome name, Biz Marquee. You're not familiar with Biz Marquee? I am not. What? Yeah, you are. You know. Yeah, you are. You know. Oh, you, maybe incidentally. You, um, yeah. Oh, baby, you... You got what I need. Yeah, that's a Bismarck. Incidentally, as I uh, thought. Big beatboxer, hip-hop guy. From you guys went in there just complete. I went just for together. it. together. I mean, I it, was, it. it was beautiful. Just it's an beauty. irresistible hit. It, it was an irresistible <laughs> So the Bismarck hit. versus the Nuge is just kind of filler. Uh, they've had Bismarcky show up a few times and, and do some goofy stuff on their albums. He did the... Uh, fully educated, I'm um, smarter than Spock. Spock on the the follow-up record. Um, so this is just, it's a, a, again, one of these little scraps of this quilt that becomes like a Beastie Boys record where it's, here's just some things we like, a, guitar, a Ted Nugent sample and Bismarcky. <laughs> well, it now makes sense now that you relate it to Bismarcky because I, I heard that, that off-key vocals and I was just like, this is familiar in some way, you know. <laughs> That's it. It rang to something. And it goes... Home. <laughs> Oh, they're going home. <laughs> and then it goes into Time for Living. Yes. Which yes. is the personification this is of interesting punk. thing just about that intro is that it was actually doubled with the guitar, which kind of made it even odder because it was something that was in key with something that was off key. But I'll just throw it out there. Time so, for Living. So Time for Living, this, this is the moment where it began the tradition, like on their next three records, where they would have, they would frequently revisit their punk rock roots and they would play their instruments, but play a really fast uh, punk rock number. Which is, again, how they started out before they started making hip-hop when they were just teenagers in Manhattan. Uh, it's a good contrast for the hip-hop and the funk and everything else that this album has been building for. It is a, for being a really heavy, heavy punk song, it's yeah. a good breather. It sure is. Um, and you, the first time you hear the record, um, you don't see it coming at not, all. Not it, even it, a little. It just comes out of that goofy Bismarcky thing, which I feel that that piece only exists just to... Uh, Have a space. Yeah, just to have a space, just to like to make that impact the the reveal of the punk rock song more jarring. Yeah, um, but time for living is uh, is a badass track. It I I actually kind of expected to uh, get into a, a mosh pit for this track, and I don't often uh, go back to that. But to be honest, that was a little bit nostalgic for me. I it mean, was, at one point, Ad Rock I used shouts, to "Have fun, mosh." Ad Rock <laughs> shouts, "Yeah, you motherfuckers, that's right." There you go. <laughs> Which that's, about sums it up. That's when you know that you are doing business. Yes. That's when, when somebody you get your, shouts, yeah, you motherfuckers, that's right. That's when you get your head, head uh, smashed against a brick wall, which yeah. it did in a mosh pit. Did fun. you that really? Fun. Yeah. But it does, we'll come back to it. it does still have elements that, we've, that I'm growing to love on this album, especially the bass line. Another time where I just, I'm, I'm following that line throughout the whole song, and that was sort of the anchor for me that kept it going for me. Well, again, it's sort of that outrageously distorted bass that is so guttural. I mean, it's so cool. You feel things you didn't know you could feel before. Yeah. That level. And it's punk, so it's weird feelings. Well, scary that's, feelings. That said, it's also a little bit familiar. This is less of that like groundbreaking kind of stuff that ah, oh, this had never been heard in this 92. Is, this is this is formula punk rock right yeah, here. Yeah, formula. Is, yeah. It's literal punk. It it, it is yeah. exactly that. And it's not trying to be anything else. It's this is here's a punk song. Yep. Enjoy a enjoy yeah. a punk song. Even then, I'm not implying that like you know uh, the, perhaps the previous track would in, in in itself was definitely groundbreaking. But there's other things in this album that a lot of it is not groundbreaking if you take it separately. Just the fact that it was fused together is a groundbreaking thing. Yeah, and that's that's what's unique about. Well, it. Well, I love the the what I guess you could consider the chorus. 
and I love these lines, so fire, so fire, and we ain't got no water, we don't got no water. Like, it's just, it's, it, 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 yeah, it speaks to me, man. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's just, no, it's the, the inflection. I mean, it's BC Boys. You're yeah. talking more inflection as opposed to lines, but still, it's, it's, it's well, punk rock lyrics literal... weren't always known for their complexity. Yeah, it's some literal. of them were, but not all of them. Again, in this instance, I'm all about atmosphere here. Yeah. This is a, one of those tracks where I just I, f- I feel the sweat of this live environment. That's what this track kind of gets through to me. Well, yeah, it's, it's... you feel like you're in a mosh pit, and I think that's yeah. exactly what they're yeah. trying to convey. Like I mean, all these tracks, even the funk ones, sound as if they were played live. So you know, <laughs> that's just, actually an interesting point that interesting... we've alluded to. <laughs> That the whole album kind of does have a live feel, like a concert experience. I said at the very beginning session. that it sounds yeah. as if it's distant. It yeah. sounds as if it's like, you know, played somewhere like a block away. And I still kind of haven't really like left that feeling throughout. Yeah. And it, they have that live show intro sample to kind of set that mood for the rest of the record. And the live show was just, was exactly like this on this tour and, mm. and I mean, throughout their career. Uh the best the, the best live performance of any kind by any people in any art form that I have ever seen in my life was in the summer of 2007 when they performed and it was just them at McCarran Pool and it was they would do their rock songs and then they like a stage rolled out and they did like they just put out an album that was just a lot of that instrumental funk stuff called the mix up yeah. um, the jam type stuff and they did that and it was like three hours of stuff spanning their whole career and it the, it sounds like like the the record because you have these you have these hip hop jams and then you have these punk rock songs and well that's the great thing about being so diverse is that at any point in their career when they decide they just want to like be a little bit more focused then they can just pick one thing that they ever did really really well even if it was just in one part of their songs and they can say hey we know this we can do an album off of it and yeah. then give that to a particular group of fans to open up a whole new base yeah you know so keeps them diverse uh, another thing I have to mention here about uh, the outro. Which, again, kind of took me away from the formulaic stuff, is uh, being such a formulaic punk rock track. It had this moment where everything kind of, like, breaks, and then you have that, that guttural bass starts getting... It, it's alone, unaccompanied by anything else, and then it gets faster. So we get this sort of, like, speeding up, like, heart-pounding sensation as we leave this track. Which is which, like it's rushing into the next yeah, song. It's somewhat less formulaic, because they want to keep people... You know, moshing in 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 orderly fashion, perhaps. Other <laughs> bands, but why be orderly? You know. But then when they do that, when they like when they when they drop it down, they build it back up, and they like come hitting you in the face with it, and then they just stop suddenly. They send you into the next track. Yes. Something's, Something's gotta, gotta give. This Something's one, gotta give. Okay, Boy, I had a weird so epiphany. Smooth. This was a weird epiphany moment, and this is uh, this song, and I don't know if I'm the only one that saw it. Gorillas. I feel like the Gorillas made a career off of emulating this song. That, that's uh, that is <laughs> fair to say. Yeah, it was it was straight out of first, second, third album of the Gorillas. I mean, it it had that sort of feel. And at first, I was gonna say this is the Gorillas in style, but I realized it's the other way around. This is the style that yeah. sort of that they did. Yeah, and it was sort of an epiphany moment because this is one of those songs I really didn't hear before. Um, just the bass line itself, the vocal distortion, everything was just being likened to uh, everything before Plastic Beach. Yeah. yeah. You know, you keep talking about how there's this really diverse sound and it, it, everybody can kind of get something. Like if you like the punk rock stuff or you like the, the heavy hitting hip hop stuff or you like uh, the, the, the jamming uh, kind of instrumental part. Mm-hmm. Uh, this song is definitely for the potheads. <laughs> <laughs> Even more so than Lighten Up. Uh, this song, I 
just the ridiculous, the hundreds, the countless hours of ridiculous shit that I said to my best friend as a teenager while stoned out of my mind in his car listening to this song. Uh, just, oh, so profound. You know, I would say that, but I would also add another little thing. I could see this being, for this album, I could see this perhaps being the most romantic track. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Well, this one also has a message. I mean, no, no, of course it has a message, and that's just the thing. That has nothing, that has nothing to do with it being romantic whatsoever. <laughs> right. okay. but, but, um, but just the mood itself, you know, it's just, it's so smooth that this kind of is getting a little bit close to the sexuality that I noted it as of the, as of the second track, but it's certainly less as, as, again, I interpret it, although no one else interprets it as rapey. This is a little bit more soothing, you know, it's not as abrasive. I think it's it's smooth fu- fu- uh, excuse me smooth funk which I don't hear a lot. Usually, if you're gonna do funk, then it's just going to be loud in your face, fast, and just kind of get you moving on the dance floor. This is a little bit more downplayed. Oh, more than that, though, this is like Pink Floyd, and this is there's it's almost Brian Wilsony. There's just layers and layers of crazy sounds to uh, disorient somebody who is full of drugs. Well, first of all, just to take the bass particularly, the bass has got a distinct rumble to it. It's not the same like distorted abrasion that I was describing the last track. Yeah. This is it's it's warm, even though it's so kind of rounded yeah i mean and i like the emotionality that the song conveys i mean a lot of the songs emotionally are just very much they one, get you moving one, in your face one or another form of attitude yeah but this one is is the first song that really goes beyond that and you kind of get that kind of romantic funk feel I wish I'll, for... I'll hone in on just one other thing here as of uh, <laughs> as of as of what you were saying uh Schaefer, just if you're gonna hone in on like pink floydian things there's like a dissonance in here that i just had to hone in on it's this keyboard moment or sort of keyboard kind of keyboard kind of guitar where it steps in well like this C-sharp Dorian, or at least most of the track is in C-sharp Dorian, and then there's this one moment where it captures this this three flat five chord, where everything just just dissonances up. It just it, it tenses up for this one moment, which again is kind of in contrast to the rest of this album. Most of this has been kind of spacious, and then all of a sudden in this one moment, it's a little bit more just kind of gritty, but only gritty for as as much as you can process. It never stays in that moment, and then it reels back to more smoothing, sweeping st- sounds. You're yeah. such a music nerd. Oh, totally. Yeah, he totally. is. Yeah, he is. <laughs> yeah, he is. We make so many jokes about that. Speaking of music nerds, he has uh, The Blue Nun, the next track, the next little musical interlude. Oh, The Blue Nun. What did you have to say about The Blue Nun, Steve? <laughs> no, no. You just make it a segue, so I have no segue. Naturally, I'd say it's the wine. Delicious as, as always, Peter. Uh, this is a... <laughs> Thank you for that. We that... began the evening at Peter Sichel's townhouse. Um, it's a Peter Sichel's comfortable piece. study in his New York townhouse, where the candlelight was just right. The high fi was, was in, in the background, background and, the and the wine was, was delicious. delicious. <laughs> Uh, these are samples of uh, Peter Sichel's, uh, what is it called? Uh, on wine. He was this. Um, Wine Baron Impresario. I don't know what that term. <laughs> awesome. He was a he was a guy who who he, he a a big a big guy in wine. I don't know what the term is, but big wine guy created the the Blue Nun uh, brand, and he had this series of records in the seventies where it's just him with like atmospheric like plates clinking and stuff and like fireplaces burning where he's just these smug upper class dicks it's, just talking oh, about oh, the, no, no, narrating exactly the experience. What it is it is uh, whale noises for the one percent. Yes, it's a, that is exactly what it is, um, and uh, that's what they're sampling here. I don't even but, think there's any. The I think the album was called "On Wine: How to Select and Serve." That's the one. There you are. 
But for a piece that really doesn't have a lot of music involved with it, it does actually propel the album for me from from Something's Gotta Give to Stand Together. It does something there. I just It's really hard to describe because it really just is a couple people talking. Yeah. We're on track to... This is the certifiable... Uh, excuse me, track 11. Certifiable... Uh, intermission for this album yeah. so as far as i'm concerned of course it's nonsensical of course it doesn't really you're not going to try to like you know match up a theme here with this particular track at the same time didn't expect it i like things i don't expect and that's about the the level that i have to kind of judge this against as i go through this album and it was a good follow-up it was a good transition to the previous track if i felt the word romance in the previous track then certainly i'm going to want to be serenaded by by wine and song oh sure with the with yeah. high society in an uh, upper east side townhouse that's and, right and sipping delicious wine with um, other well-to-do white people that's right and <laughs> if the beginning of this album started on a concrete lot in harlem well then we should find ourselves a few blocks south and that, that's actually a good thing to point out because they, are, they spend so much of their career celebrating New York and hmm. loading every song with so many intricate references to New York that if you are a, a kid growing up in rural Iowa, that when you finally move to New York uh, in your adulthood, uh, it's, you're just on a scavenger hunt for like, mm. oh that my God, D-Train, that's what the D-Train is. I get it now. Um, the Palladium, I know that that's a thing that was torn down before I moved here, but it's things like like, like that. that. So you, I you, lived here my actually, whole life and I still enjoy chronicling that stuff. <laughs> you, you mentioning that this, this album so far from like first track to this track has taken us from like the Upper East Side to like a, a Concrete Lot in Harlem is actually very fitting. Yeah, no, and I believe it's fully intentional. I mean, considering what they do, I mean, it's 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 their town too, so they might as well show every side of the coin. And I think uh, it's it's represented in their music perfectly. Yeah, I agree. I think that that kind of setting that you get from the music is the yeah. biggest and most standout-ish thing of this record and of the Beastie Boys. On to Stand Together. Stand Together is definitely uh, it's kind of the. Uh, instead of spiritual predecessor, the spiritual successor to a track on um, Paul's Boutique. At the end of Paul's Boutique, there's like this 12-minute medley of basically scraps of songs that they didn't want to finish called uh, B-Boy's uh, Bula Bass. And <laughs> there's, there's a section in it called Year and a Day that's just MCA rapping. It's only him. And it's the most amazing vocal performance on all of Paul's Boutique. It's, it's incredibly fast fuzzed out, distorted um, rap over this like sample of a disco song. And this song, uh, uh, Stand Together, feels so much like it. And I remember even hearing it the first time and thinking like, oh my God, he's doing that year and a day thing again. And of course, you know, the other rappers come in on it too. And then there's a chorus and call and response stuff. But this song, I, I just absolutely believe that the, they, when they made this record, they were like, hey, MCA, that thing you did on year and a day, you, we're doing that. We're just going to recreate that. Because it's all fuzzed out and yeah. it's all... It's, it's the same cadence. It's 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 fast and like relentless. And it does seem that in the last stretch of this album, they're getting so so immersed in sort of this like playful atmosphere that they kind of are giving off the impression it's just like we're just gonna do stuff we want to do. We're yeah. gonna throw in. We're gonna have fun for the rest of the album. Well, yeah, it, you it know, just, I mean, if you got of, the content, well, that's up front. The it, rest is kind of just a, you know, it's it's fun. It's time. almost like that twelve minute medley from Paul's Boutique is is basically the prototype of this record because. It, it was all these scraps of songs they didn't finish, and they just made it into this one mega track. Mm. But they're stylistically are all over the place, and I feel like that's the thing they took away with when they made Check Your Head had, because they were like, "We're just going to do that," except they're going to be full songs. Yeah, I actually had another uh, observation in this track that uh, for all the different um, 
impressions that the base has given off thus far. This one reminded me directly of Les Claypool. His work, like, I found in this. Which oh, is funny was... because this is, again, like, right around his time. I would almost believe, though, that this is the kind of thing that he would draw influence from. Oh, absolutely. I was listening to Primus and this record simultaneously, yes. That story checks out. <laughs> Bingo. And it's we... not in my head. Frizzle Fry. It's not in my head. You don't, have, you don't have to check my head. Um, well, yeah, and I could def- I would believe if, if Les Claypool said he was influenced by the Beastie Boys, even, even peripherally, because, I mean... Just you, they're both influenced by similar kinds of music. Too. Even if what you're hearing is merely the grit. Yeah, yeah, you know, right? Because I mean, they both. Have well, this that. one wasn't just grit; it was spacey. Spacey. It was spacey. It was weird. It was. Yeah. It felt like the Star Trek version of what the future was going to be. Like, kind of like That's an odd one. <laughs> put into the position of a Beastie Boys track. It was another different like taste of them. Another different take on on what they can do. Just some of the the, the the tonal work, some of the the, the sprinkling, the, the the confetti that they threw on top of this was just a little bit out there. Well, I'll give you that the lyrical content is a lot more grand. I would just consider the second verse. As the earth spins into a brand new day, I see the light on the horizons not fading away. Gonna shine from within like a bright white, white sun. No need to hide, no place to run. Got the vibrations of the music bringing light to your mind so you can move and groove and feel the beat of time. Cool stuff. Yeah, that's, that's very cool. MCA is the best writer, yeah. was the best writer of all of them. Yeah, uh, yeah. and I, I guess I can kind of see, especially when I look at some of these lyrics next to others, next to other tracks, I can see that some are just like, let's have a good time, man. This is, you know, this is the throw around stuff. This is who we are, blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden they get really introspective and it starts getting weighted. Even though the music doesn't always project that. For instance, I didn't really see the whole like Star Trek view of the future necessarily in this track. I saw a lot of, you know, there's still playful sound effects. It's almost like the playfulness of the music carried over, but the lyrical content got a lot more deep. But if you're not careful, you won't notice that. Well, it's hard to do it at that speed. That's one of the detractors. It's their their spit speed, their their rap speed. Perhaps that's you just it. There seemed to be such a there seemed to be such a density in this track that I didn't realize the amount of words. Like especially if I when I like followed along the lyrics here and I I, I got all the words in front of me is like, whoa, that much was said in the course of this track? Yeah. Sometimes, you know, it looks pretty much on the it's, mark. It's interesting because, yeah, his considerable. T- two of his best verses that he, that he ever wrote were these like, blisteringly fast and complicated verses, but that are just like then buried under flange and, and fuzz yeah. and distortion. And, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, it made it real frustrating trying to learn all of this stuff as a kid. That's before <laughs> well, the internet was a thing. Yeah, you, you well, learned, I did it. Luckily, you did it when when the mind is malleable. <laughs> the the next song, I actually learned the entire lyrical experience on my first go. Oh yeah. Uh, yes. So, what what is the? Uh... Uh, if if I'm not mistaken, the next track, Pow. Um, what, yes. I, I'll do the whole song right now. Okay. Oh God. Pow. Yep. Those are all. It's that checks out. Mostly another uh, instrumental number. But, it's, it's a but nice, they do all join together. It was more. Of, it felt like more like a jazz uh, idea of just expose each instrument. Yeah. Everybody take their turn, um, just to show off. Not necessarily that it was jazz, but it it, it felt like it was a nice like jam session. Mm-hmm. Uh, it keeps the live feel of this album alive. It's back to that funk I know and love, let's just say that. So it's another guilty pleasure again that's come full force here, which at this point we kind of departed for a long enough time that I was ready to have this again as that that sort of background unifier, as I keep describing it. But there's a significant awesome part here that was missing in a lot of the other uh, sections of funk, and that was that slow down. I loved when they were going full speed to snail speed. It was like they were putting their finger on the record and slowing it down. It was 
beautifully done. Just, that's the funny thing, because just as I described, there's sort of being two varieties before. There being sort of this, like, you know, on the dance floor kind of funk, a little bit more in your face, and then all of a sudden there's the smooth, slow romance quality, and they actually did fuse it together here more so than in any other track. Both of those you get equally. And that slowdown was controlled. And that's not something you hear very often. Mostly, it's steady beats. Steady, steady, steady. Well, that's what I also like about this track, is that it changes it up again. Mm-hmm. I like that they do that. Not so a lot of bands will do it once here, once there. They, they're guiding you through this experience by carefully taking a moment to go. Here, here's the thing. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't mean for like the 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 on a pedestal, the pedestal moment of this track to sort of be its diversity. Like, oh, we haven't heard that before. We haven't heard that before. This seems to kind of be like the go-to tactic for this. But again, it's just it's such an it's such a brash array of genres, especially for its time. Even if now we're a little bit more familiar with it, I mean, at the time, yeah, we're again, more familiar I have with to it now put it in the time. <laughs> exactly. Pretty much, yeah. I would agree with that. And this this is our connecting track, our little instrumental interlude before the, the maestro. maestro. Yeah. The and maestro. I, gotta, I gotta correct myself. When I said that thing before earlier with the, the trash talking that Ad-Rock did, that's from this song that I was thinking of when he does that. Yeah, you motherfuckers, I'm all that. And I see you looking at me saying, how can you be so skinny and live so fat? You know why? Because I am... All right. You, you we get it. You know the lyrics, yeah. That's not a surprise to anybody. You could probably sing the whole album from beginning to end. Actually, let's start over. <laughs> this, oh first, this song is the first song on our new album. All right. All right. This was another one of those hype songs, and at this point, I'm getting tired of it, though. Oh, okay. This it's... is one. I'm not a big fan of this track. I mean, if it was very safe, I guess, for what they were doing on this album. Uh, another time of that. Even though you're getting horns, you're getting the drums are still exemplary, but it's it's it it just didn't wow me anymore. I don't know. I don't know that I'd go that far. I mean. I thought the intro was funny. <laughs> well, and considering considering the way that they, they tend to rap in the songs, I mean, th- th- we've already established that this is their style, this bravado, this in-your-face nature. And the so. sample, are you talking about the chicken sample? I'm talking about your pool, this is Al. Kiss my ass. I ain't interested in you anyhow, I'm just interested in the b-boys. So fuck, fuck you, man. man. <laughs> I thought it was amusing, alright? It was, it's it was amusing. and it means nothing. And then, yes, I will, I'm gonna entertain your thought here. I think that the rest of this track kind of paled in comparison to the, the, uh, the, the humor that otherwise dots this album. There's not so much of a unifier in this, in this, uh, this, this humor style here, and I guess I'm overusing the word unifier, but, he, but maybe that's because I'm kind of looking for a little bit more unity in this. We've established diversity. I want diversity. Great. We've, we've had that. This is an exceptionally long album. Now I guess I'm kind of looking for something to tie it together. As of, as of these lyrics, as of this track, I didn't see anything otherwise to stand out as compared to what we've already had in those previous instances. The I'm only sorry. thing, okay. just, I'll only point out one thing that I did notice, which is kind of uh, almost a side point, but this is the only point i think in the entire album where we actually have a female's voice we have sort of a female choir and it kind of is <laughs> i mean the only thing it says is who's the man who's the man and i found that comical in of itself but it doesn't really do anything for the album really it still is just a, a sonic sonic variation that's about it i i'm starting to realize that now i'm starting to like get parts of these songs confused because when I was asking about the chicken sample that's actually at the beginning of uh, Stand Together ah the, uh, 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 uh. it's a chicken okay if you go back and listen to it forget let's just let's forget that I talked about the chicken sample <laughs> <laughs> let's move on 
Um, but no, chicken sample. I would agree. I mean, there's not a lot to say about the song, just comparatively to the other tracks we've heard. It's not so varyingly different from what we've heard on this record. But still, I mean, it would have stood out on another album for sure. A, yeah, it yeah but stood it's, out but as it's any on, other band. On this thing, which yeah. is long, like like you said, and and already has hit you with so much by the time you get to this point. Yeah, that's true. All right. Well, I will. Um, that's that that critique is kind of got to carry over to the next track. Uh, Fifteen, we're at Groove Homes. Yes. yes. Okay. Groove Homes um, is definitely another funk track. Um, well, as if that needed to be said. Of course, it's another funk track. I like it. I like it, but I'll agree it's kind of wearing a little bit. I like these interludes. I really, really do. And I do mean that earnestly, that they could probably do a whole album off this stuff. And perhaps if they did do a whole album off this stuff, they you would hear a more of a unity than you find in these disparate tracks. Because when you're kind of just like throwing back to it as like a... As, as an interlude that's clearly supposed to just kind of fill in the space amidst their other work, then you kind of lose something. You lose perhaps the amount of uh, force or ingenuity that would have been, been thrown behind that individual track. Because as far as I said before, I am a sucker for this stuff. I think that just the mesh between organ, bass, guitar, and drums is, is, is again, just sex to my ears. You know what you But, might... oh. you know, <laughs> give me more of it. Phrase it. Give me a story rather than a jam. That's my... You know what you might really like is there's a, a yeah. remix album that came out a few years ago called Double Check Your Head. Uh, and they just took... Uh, they took instrumentals of songs from that record with the vocal stems from other songs on that record and mashed them up. So you have songs where, like, Groove Homes has the lyrics to... Uh, Interesting. To, to like, so what you want over it, or or something like that. Huh. But it's it's basically it's it's a mashup album of songs that are all on the same album. <laughs> and well, it's they called, got twenty songs to work with. Even yeah. so, they even used, but they used all of the all of the soul parts, all of the parts that, you, that you've really connected with, all of the instrumental parts, right. the interludes. But they took those and they basically built beats out of them, and then took some of their like shoutier rap lyrics from other tracks on the song. Laid them on top of them. Gotcha. Interesting. Double, double check I think your head. It's I, will. I will. I think you just made that. a new Beastie Boy fan. Just I'm trying to like build on that too. <laughs> it's never too late to join the church. <laughs> the church of Beastie Boys. The, the church of, of Horvitz, Diamond, and Yauk. There we go. Um, this is a good transition point for live at PJs. Okay, another one that was kind of similar. Uh, My problem with the record at this point is I I don't dislike it. I love all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. It's just. There's no more things to say. No, I'm gonna say this. I'm gonna say this. This was a better blend, I think, of funk and hip hop. Again, now we're getting. I'll admit we're getting into the territory where it's not a matter of just like, oh, this is different. No, this is a fusion between the two. But that still, in itself, is worth noting. So in this particular case, you get a more unified sound between their rap work as well as the funk backdrop. So you're getting kind of a whole other side of them, rather than then stepping away from their tastes. They're they're they're. Using it into their into its own thing. Yeah, but I I think also the thing here is we've said a lot about a lot of these tracks, but on a twenty track record, and when some of the songs are similar in style, you tend to run out of new things to say. And I'll also agree that perhaps it's a little bit less memorable for the exact reason that I just mentioned, because you'd otherwise remember a force of both sides rather than a strange combination of the two, and you get my drift. But but all in all, I still enjoyed the track. I mean, I liked it. I, at this point, I'm just enjoying a Beastie Boys record. You know, I'm along for the ride. There's absolutely nothing wrong with anything up until this point. Yeah, yeah. that's the whole. That that there hasn't been a bad song yet. Yeah, and and then this song goes right into Mark on the Bus. Mark on the Bus is the song that is written and performed by their keyboardist, Keyboard Money Mark. <laughs> it's an interlude that really could have been a great long form song on this album. That's one thing I'm going to point out. Mm. This one, I think, had the best 
emulation of Hendrix on the entire album as well. This is the point where I went, oh, wow, all those samples from previous per... Yeah, that was really popular in the 70s and yeah. 60s. It's really weird how it's recorded. Like, Mark is really up front, and then the band it sounds like they're playing in another room down the hall. Yeah. Picked up by, like, a mic in the same room. And then, but you hear a couple of the Beastie Boys, like, kind of chime it, singing along the chorus with them, but they stay in the background. And it's just a short little story about him going to his job and having a daydream about a pretty woman on a tropical island. It was the specific line, Foxy Lady, that Foxy Lady. Yeah. That really cemented it for me. That's what where I made that connection as well. Um, for that, I, w- I really, really liked it. I liked the fact that it was nice, short, sweet. I could have seen it being longer. Had a, had a narrative. Yeah, it this is the narrative. first song, I think, on the whole record that had a through-line narrative. Yeah. <laughs> Your narrative is, good morning, time to get up and go to work. I rode on the bus into the city every day. <laughs> but I sit on my seat and I dream myself away. I but dream I'm on an island. The keyboardist, that for being the keyboardist, it still fits well within the framework of everything else that was going on in this album. Yeah. Even though it was the kind of guest musician here. Yeah, and, boy, and he's like, like, Money Mark is like really important like in helping them shape this new sound. Um, he and Mario C., who was an engineer on Paul's Boutique, but who then produced this record, uh, yeah, the two of them were, like, they they might as well have been the fourth and fifth Beastie Boys. I'll say this then. I, I, I think it perhaps would have benefited a little more if he was a more avid instrumentalist throughout this album. Yeah. Even if his, if, if his production work is, like, is... Basically, you know, he's got his thumb in the pie throughout. the The keyboard itself, I think, would have would, would have like filled out this album a lot more if it had been less humble. Yeah, I would see that, but uh, but you can definitely tell his influence for sure. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah it, no. it rings through the whole record. Um, now we yeah, get. To... I just wanted more keyboard. No, yeah, <laughs> it's my as a my keyboardist. Here. I, yes. I feel like that's fair. Um, Professor now we go Booty. to Professor Booty. This song is the only one that can dethrone So What You Want From Me. Oh, yeah? I love this song. I want to say, this is, this is the thing I want to say about this song. Hmm. This, the Beastie Boys are my favorite, favorite <clears throat> recording artists of all time. This is my favorite record of all time. MCA is my favorite Beastie Boy. And this song has my favorite verse. This song, and it's an, it's an MCA verse. The, his third verse on this, it's the only time that I believe that they ever responded to a diss. It's a, the closest they ever got to writing a diss track because MC Search of Third Base said some pretty shitty things about the Beastie Boys on the Cactus record. Oh, I don't need that. Oh, okay. Uh, All right. And he, uh, and they, offer they, him they, lyrics. They, they, dissed, he they, dissed, they dissed the Beastie Boys and uh, MCA responded in his third verse on Professor Booty. Again, Professor Booty, it's not like about anything. It's, no. The song's not about not anything. They're just rapping but about rapping. But it's really good. But he gets to the end and he's it's like, so oh, I'm going to address this. And he goes so hard. And it's, it's, it's my favorite Beastie Boys verse ever. Give it to us. That's, oh, really? Give yeah. the audience. Oh, God. So many whack MCs, you get the TV Bozak. Ain't even gonna call it your names because you're so whack. But one big oaf who's faker than plastic. A dictionary definition of the word spastic. You should have never started something you couldn't finish. Because writing rhymes to me is like Popeye to spinach. I'm badass. Move your fat ass because you're whack, son. Dancing around like you think you're Janet Jackson. Thought you could walk on me too. Get some ground to walk and pull the rug out from under your ass. As I talk on, I'll take you out like a sniper on a roof. Like an MC had the fever in the DJ booth. Now with your headphones strapped, you rock and rewind. Pause trying to figure out what you can do to go for yours. But like the pencil to the paper, I got more to come. One after another, you can all get some. So you better take your time and meditate on your rhymes because your shit will be sticking when I go for mine. And that's right, y'all. I shine light, y'all. I... Something... You can't can't say shit. It's all right. That's all right. He did. That was fantastic. No, no, no. no, Over the long haul, you can't cut the mustard when you're fronting it on and on. Uh, we did get him to now oh, rap, rap live, live on the on podcast. The, okay, I, appreciate that. That. So, I like, didn't write it. 
so that's yeah. the okay. It was written by by the Beastie Boys, but but you rapped it and but yeah, no. I love that <laughs> verse. I love that verse so much. I have stolen that cadence, that delivery, <laughs> so many times. Like most of my career is based on ripping off element, like a, like a scavenger harvesting elements out of that verse. Hey, we this come here song? and nerd about music. This is what I do on like on the music side of things, pretty much all day long. So you <laughs> you had every right to do that on oh. air. And also, I I love the comedy that's in this album. That that's throughout this album but this song really brings it to a forefront right from the get-go this song backs up all the vocals with percussion with the guitars the guitars change throughout this piece and it's it feels like it's so what you want to the next level for me that's why I'm just in love with it because I love my lyrics I love my words and it this this was the perfect marriage for what the beasties do with my love of words with of the comedy elements that they do yeah, it's speaking of the words, I mean, dude, you had some meter when you were doing that. I mean, that's the kind of thing that, again, I, it, it's, you can sometimes overlook here, uh, especially considering I was, I was also into the sort of the funky stuff just as much in this track. But when you, when you sort of fuse it all together, I think this is really the more effective uh, fusion of the two styles than Live at PJ's was. Yeah. I think this is the one where it really shined. Yeah. I agree. And I think that it, it's a... I, I don't know. I, I just think that the, that verse, that final verse really makes the whole song's impact like more powerful because the rest of the song is mostly nonsensical and then you get this direct call out that's also yeah that's also the last rapping on the record yeah because then it's just two instrumental tracks and we end and in threes well i like that they wrap up the record with two instrumental tracks in yeah. threes and namaste and namaste i think is one of my favorite in instrumentals on the record namaste is not really just all an instrumental no it's no. mca is telling well, the yeah. story yeah. but like what i mean by instrumental is like it's not it's not, it's not a rap song yeah it's smoother I mean it's much more uh, I, I think this actually Namaste is probably shows just from a musical standpoint it shows a lot more of a musical narrative over that of of just let's say the vocal narrative which yeah. is, is common yeah. in many of these tracks but you know the music really reflects it here perhaps more than any other in threes is obviously just a straight up funk jam, and you know it, it's 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 a lot more moody, and we kind of get this final drum build, which really which really approaches uh, Namaste, and I yeah. think I really appreciate the fact that it was that you know that they weren't just going to kind of phase out on the on the remainder of this album again i started to say that around of like track 11 12 it's like maybe it's you know they had kind of like checked out in order to just do playful stuff but as of namaste we got some honest to god content here yeah you know it's strong stuff the namaste itself lyrically is a poem and that's something that was just out of left field it's kind of mca explaining how, how his like this moment where he really was inspired by buddhism i think uh, yeah, and I mean, but it really conveys his passion for this perspective. Even if you don't believe what he believes, you understand why it fuels him and why it's part of his life. Let's cold, give you this line. Oh, yeah. I want to do one. A cold chill of fear cut through me. I feel my heart contract. What the hell is this? This is not... This is a Beastie Boys Beastie record. Boys. Yeah. No, that's the whole thing. This is not Beastie Boys in any way, shape, or form. But because of the variety they do, because of just everything that they brought to the table with this single album, this is completely on par, acceptable. This is okay to really divert from everything else they've gotten. Well, because you also get a really personal connection to him in that song. Yeah, and Namaste, it's the, probably one of the most emotional tracks on the record just because it's honestly him. He's just yeah. telling your story. 
And, and I connected with that a lot. From an album point of view, they start at this show, this faraway place that you're going to, that it, this is the long walk down where you don't just enter the mosh pit, you don't just get to the stage, you go up on stage and you talk one-on-one by the end of this album with the musicians making the music. It's a, it's a If you're looking for a theme, if you're looking for an arc, that seems to be the through arc throughout mm-hmm. this entire album. They start where you're paying your ticket, you're handing off your stub, you're getting your wristband or what have you. And you're, it's the journey from the gates to the stage, to the microphone, just with the progression of how they present this whole album, which is pretty freaking amazing. I would, I would <laughs> say that that through line is pretty accurate. I'll, I mean, it's not definitive, but for sure I can see it. I, I concur. <laughs> yeah? What was that, Steve? I concur. You concur. See, my crazy theory worked. For once. Because <laughs> it ain't crazy, man. You gotta be up here, man. Now this is the point where we actually pull this all together. Um, typically, we start. We let the person who chose the record go last. But since I know you're on a minor time constraint this mm-hmm. evening, why don't you give us our wrap up first? And we rate on a one to five scale: five being the penultimate, or the ultimate, and and one being trash or utter trash. And uh, anything in the upper fours, you are quite allowed to give decibels. I do them at Yes. And so, give us your your explanation, your wrap up, and your rating. Uh. Well. Uh, <laughs> The Beastie Boys 1992 record Check Your Head is my favorite record by my favorite recording artist, so I'm gonna I'm going to give it the highest possible score of your oh, cool. of your rating system. I'm 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 going to have to. It it changed um, it created a formula from which they made the the next ten years worth of their work. Uh, they they went and it's fearless in in the experimentation that they did, uh, but it still is confident in in the skill sets that they'd already. Uh, been developing with the previous work, and it's just the the perfect storm where they weren't where they weren't following a template basically, which they did on their next two records, where they 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 ever they were doing everything raw, and they there's so much love in the way that they approach all the different things that they do, um, and there's just there's never been another record like it. All right, five <laughs> because I can't give it a six. Oh. <laughs> oh. Um, I'll go into my wrap-up next. See, the way I feel about this record is... I mean, it's very personal to me because I didn't know a ton of hip-hop growing up. Um, I found it in places mostly on MTV, like Schaefer was talking about. I, I was a big Buster Rhymes fan growing up because he was a cartoon character in his music videos. His music videos were everywhere. And so he's one of the earliest rap artists I got into that was just straight up rap. But besides him, one of the music videos I remember seeing on MTV, it was probably a while after, but Fight for Your Right to Party. That, that video with yep, the Beastie Boys is, is very cartoony, brightly colored. It's a party situation. Crazy things are happening in that whole video. If there's one thing the Beastie Boys know how to do, it's make music videos. And that's always influenced me into getting into their songs. And it made me want to know the rest of their stuff. Um, I remember seeing the video for Intergalactic and them fighting a giant robot, kaiju style, like bad Japanese movie style. Like That leaves a mark because it's silly and fun and the music's infectious. This album, I hadn't heard its entirety in a while. I really didn't remember some of the tracks, but I was pleasantly surprised. I was actually kind of quite blown away by a lot of it. Um, Obviously, Schaefer's rating on a very personal connection, which... We do hear from time to time. We don't always rate fives, but we've had a lot of guests bring an album that's close to them, and they love it so much, they rate it as a five. Um, so it's not surprising that he did. 
Um, there were some flaws in the record, not a ton, but like I agree with John that some of the songs started to sound the same as compared to the earlier part of the record. But that said, as we're so inclined to say with this kind of stuff, it wasn't bad because of that. It just, you know, we had heard it already. We were, there was so much variation on this record that when it did become a little samey, it stood out a bit, you know. And it wouldn't be it would be unfair to ignore that. Um, that said, though, this is still as far as getting me into rock and hip hop and all that stuff that I ended up loving in the 90s, even the rap rock, which I did like, I regret now because most of it doesn't hold up, but I did like it at the time. This was the precursor to that. And it, it showed me that you don't have to just have a beat and rap over it. You can do so much more. And the fact that they have a straight up rock track, a straight up punk track, they're like, we're skilled musicians besides being rappers and we can do these things. And it, it really did set the tone for all of their future records. The formula was here in this record. They really found what they wanted. And it definitely, I mean, I was making jokes about this influencing nerdcore, but I know it did. I mean, not even just nerdcore, but just rappers in general who maybe liked more rock and didn't like a lot of rap, but wanted to rap. This was a connection piece. And I can see why, it, I mean, obviously looking at Schaefer's career and the songs that he's written, it's obvious he's influenced by them and I think they were a powerful asset to music as a whole as far as what they were trying to convey the album doesn't have a lot of emotionality other than attitude and in your face and party there are some romantic moments but mostly it's very a very cocky record but they were it's called check your head they want you to be aware of what they're here to do and they're putting it in your face so for me this record doesn't get a five flat out um but i feel like a four and a half is is not is too low i feel like right right in between it a four seven five because for me personally i have a i have a personal connection to my musical development with the beastie boys but also on top of that it's so incredibly diverse for 1992 especially for what you expect to be a rap, a rap record and it's so much more it's a wonderful surprise and treat and if you have not listened to the Beastie Boys, go listen to this record. Because I, I think it made a an impact on Steve because of that. Because it was so diverse, for sure. If nothing else. So it gets a 475 for me. This is one of my favorite records as well. It's not my favorite Beastie Boys record, only because I have a more emotional attachment to Hello Nasty. Because that came out when I was growing up. When I was the age Schaefer was when he heard this. Because there's an age difference. We won't get into it. But... But I definitely love this record, and I think it's, as far as quality music created, pushing the boundaries at the time, it's definitely there. It's not the pinnacle, but it's definitely there. It's definitely close. I have said in previous cases that The Five is a album which creates a new genre, which is emulated and just stolen. Like, people will go out of their way to steal from that album to try to come up with their own sound. This album is that technical definition because this is the start of, a, of, a, of genres, of, like we said, rap rock. I think it stands up today. I think that even in the rap rock community, we don't get the same level of variety, of inspiration in just choices of, of what you're going to do. But there are detractors that keep it from that five. I mean, it is the closest thing, but it's it's missing the element which I think rap rock has done to the benefit 
of what the Beastie Boys did in the late 80s through the mid 90s. And that was make the words as meaningful as their inflection, as meaningful as the choice of instrumentation, as everything else. Yeah, the pacing is amazing, and it's not what they say, but how they say it. Yet, what they say could be stronger, and that is the one detractor from this whole album. We, we said that they, they like to do rap songs about rapping, and while that definitely changes towards the end of the album, Live on PJ's, Mark on the Bus, Professor Booty, these songs actually go further than just that. But at the same time, they were kind of just repetitions of earlier as far as instrumentation is going. I mean, it's a, it's a double-edged sword. Um, <laughs> that being said, this is one of the best anything albums out there for the past 30 years. It's, a, it's an amazing piece. This is worthy of, of propelling the Beast, Beastie Boys into the, the any music hall of fame they want to be in just with this album. It is a 20-track hour-long piece that doesn't disappoint. Yeah, the, towards the end it feels kind of samey, but that's saying it's, it's, it's equating songs that sound like five-ish star songs already on this album. That's just saying they couldn't keep creating newest music that they had done from the get-go. I mean, I'm sorry they can't be super inspired through 20 solid tracks. That might be the only thing that really keeps it short of that five. So this is this is a four nine. This is a near perfect album. It is. It's one of those things that um, I heard. I've heard every song at one point or another in my life. Uh, I have heard this album in its entirety, but I kind of miss this type of music nowadays. Oh boy, you um. Just, yeah, we gush over this. You're hiking. We were fans. We were fans beforehand. Yeah, I mean, that's the only thing I'm a little aware of here. I'm. I mean, you, all of you have have known this album, but I'm going in cold, and I don't think I don't think like tastes really enter into it. Let's just put it out here. I enjoyed this album a lot more than I expected myself to because I, you know, a, a little part of me was almost expecting some some novelty work, even if it was novelty for the time, and I didn't get that. It was a good, solid album, and it felt independent. I also, it is, I made, not shy about this, not shy to admit that, that the funk was probably my favorite part of this track. Now, there might be some naysayers out there who would say, well, Steve, you're missing the point. It's about the hip-hop, it's not about the funk. Well, I don't know. As I went deeper into this album, I kind of thought to say, well, that really is more of the point. I think that maybe in the beginning, I would have been the naysayer myself. I would have said, well, this is maybe just another novelty. It's not. It's an integral part of the entire album. It does bind it together, in a sense. That said here, I'm not seeing the groundbreaking stuff that you guys are seeing. I see the rap rock stuff. That style in itself is somewhat groundbreaking, but they kind of drift around here. The the unifier is not the groundbreaking stuff. Instead, that's more of the cameo here, because I seem to have almost got more funk than that signature Beastie Boy sound, which I only know as signature now because it's late in time. But, you know, I, I, I guess I gotta go back to, to the moment in which it was released, and the, the upper echelon four stuff, I mean, to me is really defined by this masterpiece cohesive narrative which I, I I don't see unfortunately I see a lot of a lot of 
great exhibitions. I see a lot of great experiments. I think that in terms of a jam band, they shocked me more than I expected. But again, that's just because of my preconceptions. Still having gone in cold, this album had great moments. I, I, I struggle to find that, that, that binding factor apart from, apart from, again, that word again, the, the unifier that is a sound that I otherwise didn't expect. So as far as I'm concerned, this gets no decimals whatsoever. This is a solid four. This is a good album. Um, good is, is, in fact, Breach is great, but, you know, when I start talking about anything above a four, I have to get into what it's, what it's contributing in terms of narrative. I'm going to say one more thing alongside this, and that's, uh, that's what it does for hip-hop, of course. It's, it, it's a positive, and it maintains its solid four for me because of the fact that it is exactly what it makes itself out to be. Matt explained that perfectly. This is a fun all-around album. And then the thing that is keeping John from going for a five, I mean, only from that point one basis, which I think is a lot more important, is the fact that it doesn't say very much. And, I mean, when I think about that, I think about things like, for instance, well, the heist. As far as hip-hop albums we've done in, in our two years here, I mean, that said a lot more. It packed a lot more bang for its buck, but I'm not, I mean, it's still a matter of give and take. For instance, I don't always want the heist, because the heist... Let's face it, it's a little bit of a chore sometimes. It's more of an essay almost than it is art at times. Yeah. I do like positive stuff, but at the same time, you know, the intricacies here that they allude to are, are just not shaped. And giving us 20 tracks on this album is, is a handful. I mean, they went balls out in terms of quantity, in terms of what they want to give this, their audience. I want to credit that. But in terms of a cohesive piece... I mean, they just lost me somewhere at the end. They, they have to... Your words, John, I, I think ring a lot more serious than you make them out to be. If you present 20 tracks, you do need to keep it original and wholesome and, and unified and impactful throughout. It's not a matter of, 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 oh, you get leeway. I will amend myself. I'm not dropping it much, but I'm going to be on Storm site then. 475. This is just... There's too much here that I believe impacted music as a whole because of what they did. I, I really I, discredit that. I will agree. But I, no, well, but no, I just want to interject to what he says, only because... Even, I want to even, interject even, to what he said. All right, well, both. <laughs> just <laughs> let me go really quick yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. Only because you're mentioning that, um, that it's made an impact on music. I don't doubt that it has. But I think that as of this particular album, when you consider it front to back, there are signature tracks that may have impacted music as a whole. But the rest of the album borrows from various things, and it shows they are a diverse group, a diverse, talented group. But in terms of the album's straight-up statement, <coughs> that the album, I don't think, is as influential. It's what you choose to take from it. It's not a matter of, this is a solid thing. Okay, I mean, I will... I understand where you're coming from, and I don't think you're wrong in your view of the record. I think it's safe to say that the rest of the three of us are very influenced by our attachment to it. Well, that's the problem when you're going into nostalgia. And it's, and it's tough. And I really try <laughs> to separate myself from it, but I can't bring it down that low to me. It just... It, it fits so well into so many things for me. It just... I, I just... I don't... I don't see... I, I understand your complaint about the lack of narrative, but I feel like when other things exceed, I'm more forgiving of that. And I've done that before the other way around with an emotional connection and, and, and a great arc 
but lacking a little bit of quality, I've still gone in that direction. And you've criticized me on that too from your perspective. And so I get that and I'm not discrediting that at all. I think this is a place where we're obviously being influenced by our impact, its impact on us. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think Steve's Steve's rating is more in line with someone who has no experience with the Beastie Boys because that's the case more or less with Steve. And I think that's a fair rating. But if but you're, it's not just Beastie Boys against Beastie Boys. It's Beastie Boys against music. Right. But also I think if you are a fan of the Beastie Boys, but you haven't, you missed this record somehow, mine, Schaefer's, and John's ratings are more for as far as where it falls in the pantheon of the Beastie Boys. Oh, it's fair enough. And, and especially and, considering what Schaefer does, I mean, I wouldn't impute that in the slightest. He also makes some valid points about, uh, about um, sort of this, this album's place in its time and, you know, how it's influenced musicians. But the funny thing is that in many ways, uh, also to what Schaefer said, it, many musicians have failed to live up to this album. And I do think yeah. that's an important thing to say. I think that a lot of people have just said, oh, well, we're going to go thrash, thrash, thrash. Some people have taken that in different directions, but this remains a very, very lighthearted presentation of the matter. And I appreciate that lighthearted presentation. Unfortunately, it just doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't hit those cutthroat motions in many ways. There's also another thing that I've kind of been overlooking here, but I, I feel like I should sort of say it, is that many of those tracks that we looked at, the lyrical content is very much separate from the music. I don't accept I don't accept it as this sort of like, ah, the music reflects the music, I mean, uh, the, the music reflects the lyrics and lyrics reflect the music. I see them as sort of two different things. If you choose to go toward the lyrics, then you get these introspective moments, especially toward the end of the album. Like, for instance, uh, the one that Schaefer recited at length. But, um... You know, and well, several others that I recited, but there's also moments where the music just doesn't quite hoist it up. You gotta look, you gotta read, and I often have cited that as a bit of a detractor. Then again, we also have Double Check Your Head, the remix album of this album. It's relevant because we're not reviewing that, and yeah, I, I will know. be checking into that, and I appreciate uh, Shaver's nod very much so there. I mean, that the fact that they did that lends credence, uh, credence to what credence you're saying, to what you though, said. that to a point, yeah. that they, they wanted to give it another um, spin because... Of that, yeah. But the best things that are on this album are those sort of unique signature rack rock with the Beastie Boys twist type songs. I love the folk, the funk, um, and it does seem to be the unifier in this track at this, uh, excuse me, in this album. But at the same time, that's a little bit of a problem because there has been there has been better funk out there. If I was looking for a funk album, perhaps I wouldn't go to this. But I enjoy it as it's there. It's very much this just like take it or leave it kind of thing. They give me this array, this beautiful array of stuff, but that 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 doesn't always come down to what defines an album to me. It's a potluck dinner. That's fair. Yes, that's that, a perfect way to put it. That's 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 definitely. It's a really good catered potluck dinner. We're gonna sure. <laughs> we're gonna take a moment to move on now. Uh, briefly, um, we started with a song that I was late to introduce because I'm a dummy, but I did. Um, but now we're gonna take another break, and um, the first rec the first song we we played was from Sick Passenger which was Schaefer's brand new record that came out last year. It was a narrative opus that I've mentioned many times that I'm infatuated with. He did this month, only a few weeks ago, he released a remix album of the entire album, Arc Intact with covers of the sessions. In fact, session six is called the Afterbirth Monkey Redux and they do the therapist Schaefer the Dark Lord roles. Nice. Which is great. Um, and there are others. There's one called um, the Huddies Redux where it's 
still Schaefer talking, but the therapist is done in hoodies. It's 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 that a, is that is Jabba the Hut language. Yes, it's a unique Uta, take Uta. on a record, and so. In the middle of this podcast, we're going to feature one of the remixes that he's very attached to. It's his remix for Giant Iron Snake, um, and the remix is called the Untested Methods Remix. I believe Untested Methods is a remixer, um, and so that's what we're going to go into now. And we'll cover something completely different. <laughs> yes, and now for something completely different. We'll let you enjoy that, and then we'll be back. this land apart. Darkness has fallen. Stalin industry is ground to a halt. Vultures are calling. All the people crowd into the streets. Sirens and cries. Our last chance to leave the island. Our last chance to survive. People speak of our three queens. All were forced to flee. To exile to a lost isle far across the sea. They have summoned all of their subjects to follow their leads. Some heed the call. Some follow in search of their families. The road will be rough, I'm sure. Could lead me to a grave. But I've lived life as a coward. Now is the time to be brave. A simple worker, a common peasant. Not much of a man at all But if I do this, I will be a hero Proud and standing tall the water is too choppy So I go beneath the streets Into the tunnels dug for centuries That lead to the east The legends speak of a creature That lives here underneath A subterranean colossus A mechanical beast So I go down, down beneath these trees But I know A giant iron snake is waiting for me And it's so I'll drive my blade into the belly of the beast And if I do something I will be something So I go The rumbling roar of the beast builds to screeches Releases the stone from the walls Dust fills the room In the darkness I feel the bones These catacombs are a tomb The giant iron snake approaches slithering Its eyes light up the darkness glistening It's listening I know it knows that I'm here It slows as it nears My moment to strive to rise Show it no fear I go and thrust my blade into its scaly iron side Tear a hole open with both hands crawling to its inside And I find in the beast's belly all of previous hunters Bodies of others number in hundreds All dirty and dead-eyed survivors frozen in state They tried and died before me and met horrible fates There's not a moment to wait No way I'll die in this place So help me God, I will slay or ride this giant iron snake I know If I can harness it, I can ride the beast But I'll know The giant iron snake will not go in peace If I'm slow That awful monster will deliver defeat And if I do nothing, I will be nothing And I know If I can harness it, I can ride the beast But I'll know The giant iron snake will not go in peace If I'm strong That awful monster will deliver defeat And if I do nothing I will be nothing Suddenly the serpent lurches forward Tossing me into the body's its stomach contents Jostling I scramble in its guts for footing I clutch and find The cold steely bones of the giant snake's iron spine I fasten it with straps and give it a powerful yank And the creature leaps forward faster with the force of a tank Thrashing from side to side with all of its might Until it bursts through the bedrock and into the moonlight It launches and crashes upon the beach with a boom Spelling me and the others from its multiple wounds Waiting there to meet us on the aisle are our three queens along with our children, spouses, and other refugees. A welcome of wine awaits, but first I turn and see the injured giant iron snake slipping back beneath the sea. As it heals itself, our eyes meet, and at last the creature speaks, it says... 
Stand clear of the closing doors, please. Stand clear of the closing doors, please. And the giant giant take to me and broken humanity. I have bested the beast. It has delivered me to queens. If you see something, say something, say something. Stand clear of the closing doors, please. And the giant giant take to me and broken humanity. I have bested the beast. It has delivered me to queens. If you see something, say something, say something. Um, I really love Giant Iron Snake because the whole song is a metaphor where he's living this fantasy adventure until the moment where he says the snake speaks and then he plays the audio of, um, dum, dum. from the train of, uh, don't stay, uh, in broken human knees. I love that line. That's a really telling line. But it's the itself. actual audio from the train and then he finishes the song and the therapy session right after is calling attention to this fantasy that he's escaping to. And I just thought it was a brilliant allegory in, uh, in that content. It is quite brilliant. And my experience with it was, was, was pretty entertaining considering the way John set it up for me. Because I got, John had originally I, I, been like, oh, oh, you're, you're going to get angry at this track. I'm yeah. like, why? Why? Why am I going to get angry? Why am I going to get angry at this track? And I'm listening through all these varying verses of, 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 of fighting the, a the giant, giant snake. iron snake. I'm like... Oh, maybe this is a metaphor for something? Is this something like politically oriented that I might not agree with? Like, what is the giant iron stake? And and he's like, you still only get it? Um, I, I'm just listening. I, I don't think I do. And then finally I hear the train. And now stand clear of the closing doors, please. And I'm like, oh. Yeah. But I don't understand that. But he was wrong in the case to, to infuse me that anger. Because, like, what am I going to get angry at? Well, he would no, think my, because my I illusion. love trains, I would hate a track that seems to express animosity about trains. Yeah. But that's part of the culture of the New York City subway system. So Which I still love it exactly sense. for that. Yeah. Um, I, I have my own animosity. That's one of my favorite things about Sick Passenger. I'm going to talk to you more about with with Schaefer and that's what we're getting to now so Schaefer this is the second time this has happened on the podcast unfortunately I had a prior uh, prior engagement so he had to leave uh, after his wrap up but I'm going to do a phone interview with him um, as of this recording in the next day or two and we're going to insert it here so I'm going to take a moment now to introduce myself wait can I introduce you can, you did this last time too he should yes take it away Matt um, thank you for doing a follow-up interview, um, and thank you for coming on the main show earlier this week. We appreciate you being a guest. Uh, it, it was my pleasure. I'm sorry. It's, I know it's been kind of difficult to pin you down to do a follow-up interview or to even finish an interview while I was in the studio. I'm elusive. You are elusive, but I've got you now, and I will release you into the wild after 20 to 30 minutes. So I, I, the first thing I really wanted to ask about was because I, I mean, I met you probably like three years ago now at your birthday show when you were playing with MC Frontalot. Um, ah, yes, at Littlefield. At Littlefield, ages ago. Um, and um, one thing I've noticed about your music since the start is you kind of walk the line between you know, comedy music and, and, you know, some of the more serious personal stuff, it's clear that some of the stuff does come from the heart and other of it is you poking fun at things in life. 
Um, did you always, when you started rapping, did you always want to set out to kind of go in that vein to kind of take things out on a lighter note? The, it, not necessarily in, in the vein of nerdcore, but just did you want to kind of go that route on a, a lighter note or did that just kind of come out of nowhere? Uh, I, I think from the beginning, uh, it was my earliest material, the, the stuff that's never been released anywhere that no one will ever hear. <laughs> it was always, it was always very comedy based. Um, and I feel when I, when I first kind of developed the act, the, the shape of the dark board act, everything, there was still, a. a, a a comedy element of it, but the shtick was all about Satan and about being metal bands and and um, things like that. But I felt the the the, the comedy element, and I, I feel like some of the early material I would consider comedy music. Um, it was mostly, I think, I was really self conscious about the idea of presenting so many words that I had written and delivered to a group of people that it was you know by injecting it with a lot of humor. Uh, made it feel somehow safer to me. But as time grew on, that, that's kind of felt more and more like, I don't know. I, I, I hate the, I've always hated the idea of being considered a comedy musician. And I've right. always felt that I've, that, that it's since then it's kind of developed more as I, I'm a musician there's, and I'm a rapper, but there's a lot of, there's just a lot of punchlines um, scattered throughout. So even when I write, darker material or more personal material. There's still, <clears throat> there's still a few punchlines thrown in there, kind of in that whistling past the cemetery idea when, when material gets too dark. But um, I have had to steer away from just like every song being a joke. Right. Well, yeah. And, and I mean, your last record, Sick Passenger, definitely gives that as a clear message. There are funny moments in the record, but overall it's a very serious narrative. Uh, yeah, that, on that record, I feel it's it's definitely the the the, the punchline becomes less the thing that I've relied on, and it become and and it becomes less of a I'm going to make you laugh because I'm self conscious about rapping, and it's become more of a that's the whistling past the cemetery. That's guys, this is going to get dark, but there'll be a couple of ha ha's here and there. Just just stick it out, you'll make it. Um, since since we're on the topic, uh, Steve had uh, my co-host had sent me a few questions for you, and since we're talking about the new album, he wanted to know: Is the psychological self-analysis album something you feel that you wholly originated for this album, or is it kind of an homage to something that was another work? Um, no, it was I. I've always I, I've had the I had the idea for a while that I wanted um, a, a record based on what I was learning in my own experiences in therapy, mm-hmm. and try to you know make them a little bit more serious. Uh, but as I was like kind of collecting these ideas for songs, um, it just kind of became well. This is I learned this stuff through therapy, so we're just going to make the whole album about therapy. Um, so it was definitely it was definitely inspired by my own experience and and being in treatment um, uh, rather than by any other work. Gotcha. And um, and so you kind of constructed that narrative. Now I know you had some of the songs on that record for ages because when I interviewed you like two and a half years ago, Tom Girl was my favorite song then, and you hadn't put right. out this record yet. So did you always have an idea of this or did this, this only came recently as you started to, to go to therapy, you kind of had this construction. Yeah, there, there are a couple of songs on the record that I'd been 
TEDx kind of workshop and I'd been doing in shows for, you know, up to three years. Um, Tom Girl, I always imagined as, as being part of this narrative. Um, and also the song Do Sex was always a part of the narrative. Right. I think the only one that, that kind of got, uh, that was pre-existing that I kind of shoehorned in was Boo, I'm a Ghost. That song is, that song is, at this point, it's four years old. Um, and it was actually written for, uh, in the summer of 2010, it was written for an epic wind burlesque uh, tribute to Ghostbusters that I did with Lugo. Uh, that one I had to actually kind of I shoehorned in. I'd always, I always really liked that song and wanted to put it on a record. And after several years of people harassing me because I kept playing it and it was still not available. Right. Get it in there. But I found a way because it actually, it, it's, the role that it serves in the narrative is kind of watching the last glowing embers of the character that, that starts off the record. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I thought that it was actually kind of fitting because it was the last, it was the first song I'd written in a batch of material following the release of a previous record. So it actually almost in a serendipitous kind of way fit the narrative even after I squeezed it in there. Yeah, it's it, it's one of those things where like every time I listen to that record, I just find more and more connecting points. The narrative in that record is one of the strongest overarching narratives I think I've ever heard in an album ever. And I think that comes a lot from it being so personal to you. But like everyone I play that record for, like their jaws on the floor after they've heard it because they're like, did he, wait, he, how, like, you know, because it's just one of those mind blowing narratives. You're like, oh, this is where we're going with this. Uh, well, thank you. I, I really appreciate that. Um, it was because it was, you know, very, very personal material. And then it was very <laughs> anxiety inducing to release. So hearing uh, positive feedback. Uh, is always reassuring. I it started off. I had a narrative that I was. I had this idea of how I was going to tell. I was going to string a collection of songs together with this <clears throat> um, psychoanalysis narrative. But as I kept um, working on the record and cutting songs and, and coming up with new songs, it, you know, the story kept changing and changing and changing. Um, and then when I finally had a like a workable outline of the story and I figured out how I wanted to tell it as I was still finishing songs. And then I was like, now I'm the Easter bunny and I'm just scattering hints and Easter eggs all over <laughs> the, the, to try to, to, so that after, so that on subsequent lessons you can go, Oh, you referenced this thing and this other thing. Um, and that was, that was fun. That felt kind of diabolical skipping around through drafts of songs and being like, <laughs> I need to mention the scent of lavender in here. Or uh, you know things like that. Yeah, very cool. Um, Steve's last question before we get on to some of mine is: he wanted to know if you have a favorite subject matter besides you know the the personal stuff that you did on the new record, whether it's within the kind of nerdcore framework that you sometimes go to, or or even beyond that. Is there like a specific thing you really love to sing about? Huh. Um, I love telling stories. I think more than I think the the I don't know if I have a preferred topic. I know that I've written a lot of songs about drugs. Um, I don't know that I necessarily, if that's a favorite topic for me to sing about, but I know it's one that's very easy for me to write about. Um, uh, but the, I don't know yet. So I don't know that I have necessarily a favorite kind of topic. I like, I still like things that are about like demons and monsters, goblins and stuff. Um, my favorite kinds of songs to write are narrative um, storyteller tracks and, and, and instead of just a, a list of 
things. Um, and so I like, I like storytellers, teller songs because then I can write songs about giant monsters or, um, or tell like weird kind of fables and things. Um, or how fonts fight to the death in a giant ring of doom. <laughs> exactly. You know, that song was, uh, that particular song was inspired by a typo that cracked me up. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and it just turned yeah I, I, I dropped the R in Battlefront and then I just looked at it and giggled and just, and then wrote the story backwards from there that's great that's that's probably one of my favorite origin song stories I've heard <laughs> that's, that's great um, so I know that also and this may be a surprise to our audience it may not be a surprise to our audience you didn't always do rap you actually played in punk bands for a while yes that's uh, I was a drummer for many many years in um, kind of punk and noise and metal bands uh, kind of kind of experimental bands throughout college and, and also when I lived in uh, California do you do you have ever had any have any desire to go back to that to play some rock stuff as well like in in another band? Uh, I do. Um, I there was I, I kind of got a taste of it for for a few years. I was kind of moonlighting in um, in a couple of uh, tribute bands with some friends of mine from Queens, and we you know we were like we did like a Ramones tribute band, Sex Pistols, and Guns N' Roses, and I played drums in a couple of those, and that was. That, that always kind of got me, like, it, it gave me the fever to play drums again, but just long enough that we get to the show and then I have to get back to work on something else. And, um, I, I, it is a thing that I, I think about revisiting also in, in some capacity with, with my rap act. I, I had a backup band for a while called Dark Lord, and I've always thought about uh, reforming them, but it was a smaller band. I had a five-piece backup band. <laughs> too many, that's too many people uh, to, to wrangle for rehearsals and shows. Sure. Would you ever try rapping while playing drums? Is that a thing you'd ever want to try? <laughs> that is, <laughs> you need to get out of my diary because that's a, yeah, that's a thing that I've, um, it's, it's a thing that I've been thinking about, uh, developing also. Very cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, oh, another very important question to ask, because we did do an interview about two and a half years ago, and this one was one of the most important questions I think I asked the whole time. Is Hershey's Special Dark Chocolate still your favorite chocolate bar? Hershey's Special Dark? Yep. Oh, man. It toggles. You know, it's a kind of, um, it's, it's so good. It's, I'll say it will forever be the thing that wins in a bag of Hershey's miniatures. Always. It's all, it's, it's, those are the, the gold and the rest of it is gravel. <laughs> but, you know, my, my favorite candy bar changes around a lot. I had kind of a, uh, an O. Henry renaissance this year. Um, and I've been really just getting down with O. Henry's mostly. Nice. Well, yeah. that, that's good to know. I like to, I like to keep people updated, you know, in case people want to bring Hershey's you special, bars. Hershey's special dark though. It's still in an upper echelon of candy. Um, so obviously you have put out a remix record, uh, this month, um, for my birthday. Thank you. I appreciate it. You've been releasing <laughs> albums in October for the last three years. So I like to think it's cause it's when my birthday is. So thank you. Uh, it, 
Hey, I'm going to go with that. <laughs> it's all been for you for your birthday. <laughs> Excellent. Um, and so the remix album has unique takes on both the sketches and the um, songs. Was it always an idea to keep it as a, con- a somewhat cohesive narrative narrative in the remix album too? Did you always want to do the skits and the song? I, yeah, I always wanted it to be. Um, it was a few months after the record had come out, and at that point, I already had like already four people that I know had requested um, some remix material off of it and asked for instruments then. And since I had so many of them so quickly, I then another one of my dumb ideas where I sit and giggle at it long enough and then execute it. Uh, I thought, well, what if I just, if I keep continuing at this rate, maybe I'll get remixed of all the songs. And maybe then I could get people to like remake the, the skits. And, and just, I wanted to see if I could take a 21 track album and crowdsource it among my peers to, to where I could actually have the entire album recreated with different points of view on all of the, all of the material. Um, so, I mean, keeping the, uh, the narratives, it's only by virtue of the fact that the, the songs exist in the exact same order. Right. Although, if you only listen to Remix Passenger, unless you are incredibly multilingual, by which I mean incredibly, not only do you speak English, but Hebrew, German, French, and <laughs> Hattese, um, then, yeah, you will have a very difficult time understanding the story. And I actually liked how that worked, because then if people who are just finding out about me and getting this free remix album, if that interests them enough, if, if, if they like it, maybe after a few listens, they'll be so frustrated that they don't know what is in between a handful of those songs, maybe they'll go pick up the original one. There you go. Great selling point. Well, I also was very impressed that you got both Leonardo and Shredder t- to agree to do one of the skits, because that's impressive <laughs> to me. Uh, yeah, I, you'll notice that that's not how they're credited. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot of great, uh, remix. Um, there's a lot of great remix, like remixing talent on that record by a lot of people that I've worked with before, like DJ Robo Rob and, uh, Vince Vandal. And then there's a, a bunch of new people, untested methods to mellow. There's, and I just thought that for the most part, I, these are versions of the songs that I now like better than the album versions. I, I just thought there's a couple of them that are really, I was really wowed with. Well, yeah, and sure, you've been performing the original versions for so long that it must be refreshing to kind of perform it a little differently. Well, that, yeah, that's kind of a bonus. You, you, if, you, if you ask him real nice, you get an instrumental, then you have new live versions, too. Yeah, which which is fun. I remember hearing you do the false metal mix of Boo, I'm a Ghost and one of your last performances. Which is, it, yeah. It, it makes the, it gives the song a completely different impact, but it's still just as much fun. I like I like doing that. And that one's actually, uh, false metal is actually a a two-piece recording project, um, half of which is Dave Famous, who has made a lot of my beats over the years. Mm-hmm. Most of the stuff on Market of Beast and then stuff on Manslaughter, and, um, he, and then he made the opener for, uh, for Sick Passenger. So he, I've been working with him probably longer than anybody. Uh, so, yeah, and I really liked his Boo Ghost, or his uh, Boo remix, and that's, that's definitely the one I prefer to do live now. So, thanks, Dave Famous. <laughs> Um, and I like I, I remember I was telling you the other day when we were recording one of my favorite versions on the remix album is the eight bitified version of Deuce which I just think is it just it, it it what I like about the remix is that you just didn't have a remix that 
made it similar but a little they all kind of changed the cadence and the the almost the flow of every song they're all just a yeah. little bit different now like the opener is a slow introduction instead of this high energy in your face track and it, it, it turns it on its head a bit you know yeah i love i i, I absolutely like that it starts with such a different tone because of that uh and whether what you were talking about the the eight bit the the do sex yes yeah and that's uh double ice backfire that's uh, Shell, my, my friend Shell Riley. Oh, Shell Riley. Sure, I know Shell Riley. I yeah, know Shell Riley, Riley from the Kabuto the Python sketch in the uh, guest list where you start a chain reaction that makes him die at the end of the song. <laughs> right. Uh, but Shell Riley and Ty Finley, who are the double life backfire. Oh, cool. That's one thing that I've loved since I've gotten into nerdcore and anyone associated with nerdcore is you can go down the rabbit hole on Spotify so quickly by just uh-huh. they link from art one artist to the other. Like I told Doc Awkward when I met him at his show with MC Fernalot last uh, this month or last month, whenever that was, that I discovered him through you because it said, like Schaefer, check out this song he did with <laughs> Dr. Awkward. And then I click on it and it's a song about a superhero looking for a villain. And I'm like, well, now I'm going to listen to everything this guy has ever done ever. Oh, uh, he's so good, too. I I just think that guy's amazing. He's he's wonderful, and it's funny. I reached out to do an interview with him, and I didn't hear back for a while. And then he sent me a paragraph explaining why he hadn't gotten back to me. And I was like, "Relax, cool. We'll do it next month. No worries." <laughs> yeah, he's a he's a good guy. Um, uh, also, you can kind of do a fun game, like among the, the rappers of this scene. You can um, if if you can find two rappers who haven't uh, actually collaborated before. You can at least string them together in one additional step just by uh, can't by guest verses. Yeah, that's true. If you have it, if you have like everybody's everybody either raps with everybody, and the few that haven't, we've all rapped with the same people that one another has. Yes. Well, that was the next thing I wanted to ask is I've noticed, and you've mentioned this in jest on your own podcast a bunch, that you've done quite a few guest verses in the last few years. Um, um, is that come from just wanting to keep working and keep your stuff fresh and keep busy? Yeah. Uh, and also so that I just continue to have a body of work so nobody worries that I'm, you know, trapped under something heavy in my apartment. Um, <laughs> which, which if happened, it might take Lugo a day or two to realize. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, I'm, I'm, I spent a lot of time here alone. Um, so, uh, what was the question? So, so it, I brought up guest versus. I guess the question is, how do a lot of the guest versus? Oh, right, right. I got it. I wait. I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop you right there because now I remember it. <laughs> um, no, but it's, it's, it is a good exercise to keep, um, to, to keep fresh, both just in writing and recording. Uh, and I also like it. Um, I like doing guest versus because it feels like uh, it feels like homework. Because you're given you're given an instrumental that's you know this is the this is what you'll be rapping over and then here is the topic that you have and this is the space that you have now go uh, I, I kind of like the, the the discipline of that I also like it when I get the other rappers verse first because then I'll kind of do things to mirror what they're doing and in doing so it, it kind of gives me um an even more intimate understanding of, of what my peers are doing to play. It's, I don't know. I just, uh, it's a lot of, it's a lot, it's a lot of fun. Um, and so, especially when I come off of a, a big re- recording project of my own, I love to just take on tons of guest verses. Um, so I can get out of writing my 
my own songs that take me forever because it takes me ages to write three verses and a couple choruses. Sixteen bars, I can do that pretty fast. Yeah, I, and it, it, I'm reminded of this also because I interviewed uh, Michael Kill very recently, and he was telling you the story about how you both wrote your the first your verses separately, but they had the same intro line, which I think is fascinating considering the space you guys yeah, are coming from to write that song. It was spooky. Uh, Michael Kill sent me a song for his new his new album, the The Snuggle Is Real, and the song was called Sinking Ship, and he gave me this pretty bleak, grim topic for it. And so we were both writing these kind of almost wistful uh, verses, but we both separate of one another started our verses with the exact same line, which was, it's been 10 years since. And uh, so immediately it's all introduces you into something that is going to be written in like maybe nostalgia or, uh, or regret or something. It just, it feels kind of heavy, but it was weird that it was the exact same line. Yes. Clearly, you think alike. You and Michael Kill are the same person. That's my theory. My, uh, you know, it's, there's only like a couple of pictures where we're in the same place at the same time, but it could have been doctored. It could, they could have been. It could be Photoshopped. You never know. One of, the, one of us is always a little bit obscured, maybe a little soft-focused. <laughs> um. The next thing I wanted to ask is to switch off from um, from music for just a little bit and ask how the Epic Piecast came to be. Because I know you, uh, obviously, we've had Lugo on before, and we know that you guys have been friends for a long time. But how did the actual podcast come into being? <laughs> the, the, the podcast, it's going to bum him out, but I'm going to tell you this. But the podcast came about, it was, it was almost um, a consolation prize when I to cushion the blow when I um, thought I was going to break Nelson Lugo's heart by telling him, telling him I was no longer going to co-produce Epic Win for Less. Uh, the last show that we produced together for a couple of years. And I got to a point where it was just, it, it consumed way too much of my time and I wasn't, I wasn't making music and it had been a while since my record had come out and I had no real progress down on my next one. And I, I just, it was pulling away too much focus. And so I left, but it was this thing that we'd always done together and had, had been a thing. And, um, and you know, it was, it was very sad when I, when we had to like, you know, break up basically from doing this thing that we'd been doing. So part of the, um, I, to encourage him to continue doing the show and to, uh, say that this thing, this kind of rapport that we have like now professionally presented to audiences, uh, so that we didn't have to stop doing that. I suggested that we would have a podcast where, I don't know how I pitched it, but if, if, if let's just pretend I said, hey, we'll have a podcast where once a month uh, I'll be really cranky and disinterested and you'll be really excited about shows on the WB and we'll argue about that. <laughs> <laughs> and that's pretty much how the show goes. I mean, well, like... that's, how it's, that's pretty much, yeah, that's, well, that's what it became. We'll bring somebody in and we'll show, we'll demonstrate to an audience that we don't know how to interview people. Um. Well, it's, it, it's funny because, you know, I find myself because I know you and Lugo pretty well at this point. I've known you guys a while. Like when you guys start arguing about a movie or like a nerdy thing that I really am passionate about, I find myself like yelling at my computer and shaking my monitor like, you're both wrong. <laughs> what are you talking about? Stop it. Yeah. So. I, 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 I'm not going to suggest that we're trying to troll that reaction out of you, but, uh, uh but data has been recorded and will be going into my report. I think uh, I guess maybe. 
Oh, well, well, that's good to know. Um, the the next thing I wanted to ask is, obviously, we've talked at length before about nerdy things that you're interested in. And so I'm going to avoid the topic of Scott Pilgrim because then we'll never, ever get off the phone. Um, <laughs> so instead, I'm going to ask, do you have a favorite nerdy comic book TV show that's on now? There are quite a few of them with Gotham, Arrow, The Flash, uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., is there one that you like best, and is there a reason why, or do you just hate them all? Oh, oh, I I love Gotham. I'm I'm so on board with Gotham. I love it. I just love it. I don't even love it. I don't even offer that like qualified. Well, I mean, it's not perfect. I'm I'm really sick of people having to to feel that they're somehow self conscious of the things that they like, and they have to offer this unrequested like uh, like disclaimer before they espouse an opinion on some pieces. I don't like Gotham in spite of its flaws. I like Gotham. It's great. <laughs> that's that's my feeling of it. People are like, but 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 don't care. It's it, I don't care. I just don't care what the critics. It's fun. I, 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 I like fun. It's a, it's fun, but it's ridiculous. It has hokey writing. It comes from a comic book. <laughs> Sit down and with your friends and take the dialogue out of your favorite issue of Batman and read it to one another like Shakespearean actors and uh, and, and, and then you will have a huge, tremendous appreciation for, for for how great Gotham is. I I will agree with you. I actually am a, a great fan of Gotham as well. I enjoy it. Though I'm also a huge Donald Logue fan, so when I heard he was really playing Bullock, I'm like, well, I'm in. It doesn't matter what else they do. I'm in. That's him. him. Him playing Bullock is inspired casting. Oh my God, it's brilliant. Um, um, and but beyond that, like it's funny. So I think it was last month's Epic Podcast I was listening, and I think, or no, it was two months ago. It was Chuck and, um, and Nelson talking about Gotham, how much they love it, and how uh, Nelson was tired of people raging about stupid network changes. And I found myself in the first episode of Gotham getting mad for that exact reason. I'm like, well, Nelson just called me out on the internet. So maybe I should just enjoy the show and shut up. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, another, another, another criticism I hear leverage supported on, on, on social media is that liberties that they're taking with some of these stories. And every time I read that, I'm like, what are some of these stories? If you can find me, you take one of your favorite elements from the from the, the universe of Gotham City and and from Batman's seventy five years. Take one of your favorite elements of any of those stories, then find me three consistent versions of that in the course of seventy five years, and I will buy you all the pizza because it's not a consistent universe. Origin stories have changed so many times, and the relationships among characters have changed, and and secret identities have changed, and so much of it has been given. Uh, you know, little little touches and, and flourishes here and there, or utter rewritings and retcons. But it's it's not so consistent. It's it, it's more tonal shit that you I, you need to like sell it as Gotham, and and that's what the show does exactly. You know, yeah. the only different times, different ways, or Oswald Cobblepot's origin stories are told is preposterous. More times than I know people's first names. How's that? I, I believe it. I'm not even that familiar with all of the different ones, so I will take your word on that one. So I just, but as, as far as setting the tone and and making it a television show, I think it's great. A, a Gotham City without Batman, uh, but, 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 it works. I don't care, it works. I I, I agree. Um, I just want to chime in that I agree about Gotham, and it's one of my favorites. But the thing that one 
it's so just not trying to hide what it is. The Flash. I don't know if you've seen the the new Flash TV show, but I. You know what? I think you're you're pretty much going to be the nail in the coffin that says I have to watch this show because Lugo and Chuck and uh, we we did the podcast the other night. We're just. They were both just looking at me with the with this gravity in their eyes. I was almost as if to say, "Oh, oh, my fallen brother, you need help, and we will guide you there. You need to watch this show." So I, I feel like it's probably about time. I don't have the same kind of historical, emotional connection to the source material because I never really read the Flash or any of the Justice League books. But, but knowing knowing how much. Um, praise from people who I respect uh, it's getting it, it's enough to make me give it a shot yeah I was me and me and Sarah were home the other night just kind of sticking around and rolling for the first time in weeks and like do you want to watch both episodes of The Flash we have it on Hulu okay we watched them and like after both episodes are over my mouth is agape like first of all it has Tom Cavanaugh on it and I love anything he's in he he I, I enjoy every show and movie I've ever seen him in um, but yeah. the kid they got playing the Flash is kind of almost perfect. Like he's not too cocky, he's not too dorky, he's not too ridiculous or stupid. And it's at this point not trying to be anything but a Monster of the Week TV show. There's a villain. It's the first one's the origin story, but there's still a villain. Flash has to stop him. Flash stops him while learning stuff along the way. And I'm kind of it, kind of on board for that. Just trying to be more than that. And I'm sure it will at some point. But for now, it's like. Plus, also, I just started watching Arrow. I know I'm like two years behind, and I got sucked in immediately. So. Uh, I thought I watched Arrow either. See, I don't like. I used to. I used to binge more and and consume a lot more television and, and video games, movies, and stuff. And ever like, that record that I made broke me because I spent so much of a year, just hours and hours and hours behind my computer, that. Since I've since I finished it, I I, it's, I still have a hard time getting out of it. Like in the past year, I still kind of just compulsively work, even if I'm not even making anything that's heading towards some kind of release. I just work kind of all the time, and um, and I, I'm probably one of the few people that would ever say this in a lamenting tone. But you know, I really need to watch more television. I, I really need to just sit and watch TV more frequently. I I agree, Safer. As someone who's kind of been doing that a lot lately too, since uh, Crash Course has been getting a, a little a lot more attention, we've gotten more likes. We've been getting actual fan requests from people I don't previously know and had to bribe to send us requests. Um, I mean, what? Um, I've been working a lot too, and so like I just been been watching Arrow to not do anything, to just watch a thing and kind of turn my brain off a little bit. Uh-huh. So I highly recommend it. It's wonderful. Makes time for it now. In this, when the weather gets cold, this is the year. This is my year to resume being a couch creature. Uh, well, that's good. Yeah, get 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 out of the cold and wet, and relax in the warm while watching good or bad TV. I recommend either. Um, well, I don't want to keep you all night because we could probably talk about nerdy things forever. <laughs> but I want to thank you for for doing the interview. I truly appreciate it. I appreciate. Um, as a fan, I appreciate getting to know you beyond that. And, uh, I appreciate you taking the time. This show has been something I've been busting my ass for a long time. And it was always a goal to have you on because you were one of the first artists to really get me going on nerdcore and just rap in generally after I'd fallen out of it from the nineties. So thank you for that. 
Well, thank you so much, and uh, thank you for having me on. Um, I'm honored to have been a guest. Well, great. And we'll definitely have to bring you back because I know you've already decided to crush Lugo and destroy his record. So that, That's right. But I'll, I'll, I'll do the next one in the studio. Yes. And we'll do the whole I'll thing. Actually, I will leave my, my cave and I will come and uh, and I will shatter his record of crash court appearances. Excellent. Well, I appreciate that. And um, oh, really quick before we go, are there any is there anything you want to promote? This will be up Thursday night. Um, so people listening, hi, it's Thursday night. Um, is there any shows coming up that you want to promote? Oh, um, yeah. On Friday, November 14th, throwing a big party in Brooklyn because it will be my 40th birthday. Um, so there's going to be some hip-hop from So Say the Elemental Wizard and Tribe One from Atlanta. And then there'll be some burlesque from Bunny Buxom, Little Motown, Sam Appeal, Francine the Lucid Dream, Corvette LaPace. And this whole thing will be hosted by known wizard Nelson Lugo. That's uh, Friday, November 14th at Fifth Estate in Brooklyn, New York. Excellent. That sounds like a wonderful way to spend your birthday. I'm pretty sure I've already put it in my calendar. Cool. Excellent. Well, uh, Internet, go to that show. Celebrate Schaefer's birthday with him and me at the Fifth Estate. Yes. And thank you again for taking the time. And I will talk to you soon, Schaefer the Dark Lord. All right, man. You take care of yourself, all right? You too, buddy. I'll talk to you later. Right, bye bye. And so it was really great of um, of Schaefer to do the interview after the fact. I know he had to run out, but um, I always love talking to him. I've gotten, I mean, Schaefer the Dark Lord's become a friend of mine. It's kind of fun as someone that I first started out just listening to and enjoying his music, becoming friends with. And he's been a, a really cool person. And he's, I've wanted him on the show for a while, so I'm kind of really excited that he finally got to come it's, on. It's uh -oh, great. Uh -oh, it's you wanted him on too much. Conflict, conflict of interest. Conflict of interest. It was uh, great to finally meet this gentleman because uh, we got to listen to his music, um, and you just heard us talk about. Well, Matt talked with him about it, and it was. And he's real. Yeah. Well, no, it wasn't. Oh, just, he wasn't here long enough, so I don't know if the real is he real. I don't know. This was the first time I got a. I had a musician that I got to sit with his music for over a year now. I listened yeah. to Sick Passenger a year, just over a year ago. I heard it within a week of its first release. Um, so it it created familiarity. I think. I kind of felt like I knew him already. Yeah, that's that's what that record's supposed to do, especially since it's so personal. It's a uh, fascinating concept of an album. I've never, I, I've never, of any genre, heard an album that is so deep, like cheekily psychological. Yeah, I, I, I say for me, it's one of my favorite concept record, records of all time, just because I'm so close to the music and I enjoy it so much, and it's so personal. And some of those songs that he writes, I feel that way. The city. The song The City, where he's talking about how the city's crashing down around him and how people live here who can't take it. Like, and the everyone ruins, has had that moment the in the city. Ruins I'll tell you straight up right now, I think his album beats the Beastie Boys album today. I would agree, I, I, personally. I, I hope he hears that. <laughs> I would agree. As he is no longer present. I've, I've mentioned before that I would give it five stars hand down, and it was one of my favorite records last year. Um, so I'm, I was just, I'm essentially blabbering on to thank Schaefer again for coming on the record. Uh, coming on the show. But um, we're going to close out with our usual closeouts before he does our sign-off, and then we go into our, our final song performance of his. 
But um, I guess let's start with Steve. Can you give us a spam email since no fans have sent us emails this week? Sad. Sounds so sad. We've been having a pretty good streak, though. We have been having a good streak, streak for us. And we've been, by the way, also all new fans, thank you. Um, the likes on Facebook, everything, the follows on Twitter, the retweets, I appreciate it. Oh, really quick, a special thanks to Marion Call. If you're listening to this uh, episode, I saw her over the previous weekend, um, and she paid me very high compliments to my other podcast. Crash Course Autographs. Um, she really enjoyed the interview and said she'll continue to share it every so often because it's one of the best interviews she's ever done. That was incredibly thoughtful and sweet, and I feel the same way about that show. I feel like I'm really gaining speed as I do it, so thank you for that, and please continue to listen. Well, hopefully you'll be equally enamored by this very pleasant spam. Excellent post! I used to be checking constantly this web blog, and I am inspired. Extremely useful information, especially the last section. Smiley face. I maintain such info much. I was looking for this particular information for a long time. Thank you and best of luck by limitbit91.skyrock.com. I gotta know what post it's on. Do you know? I <sighs> because that matters when they say how much they love does. the post. I believe this was a podcast. This oh. indeed was a podcast. I remember that much. Because sometimes so. we've gotten comments like that on like pictures. No, 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 no. You can't get an escape this time. This time it was on a real post. It was on a real I post. Know, I don't know how I feel about that. Too real I maintain- for you? It was a little too real. I maintain such such info much, such info much. The robots he maintains are learning. they're learning. But that's the no, thing. He's saying this. he maintains such info much because of the info that we much have given him. Much. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's one of those have had have hasn't had. Sure. When you start talking about timelines and let's not get wibbly wobbly, please. And Doc Brown tangential things. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. Um. So yeah, and so now John gets to announce his I'm next shaking. Pick, his I'm album shaking. choice. He's only been waiting for this for the last two years. Not two years. But oh yeah, it's probably, it, yeah. yeah, no, it's yeah, about that's about when that I long. took a soundbite from yeah. you. Yeah, shut up. <laughs> as I said before, um, if Weezer did an album, we're freaking doing it. I was remix doing that. It was a very good remixing. I enjoyed it. That's I, what I was I, getting it, to. Yeah, yes. no, it was pretty good. Uh, yay. Question mark. It's Weezer. We don't know how to approach this. Things have changed over the years. I have not listened to it yet. It's been out for weeks and I have not listened to it yet. So I'm. What's the name of the record, Shaky? Shh. Everything will be all right in the end. It's almost like it's reassuring you of something. <laughs> yeah. This is an album that they're going back to a uh, producer that helped them produce some of the most. Uh, the earliest albums. work. Uh, it's under a new label, so like. It, we'll it could be something magical. It could be something terrible. I'm even avoiding reviews. Like, I've only listened to the Back to the Shack release. And then I was like, oh, that's awesome. I'm not going to listen to anything else. So I'm, I'm, I'm shaking. What he's saying is he's doing it in the proper Crash Chords manner. One week. One week. Immerse yourself in it. Grow it. Love it. Grow onto it. Let it become a part of you. I would, and then I'm, review it. I'd be lying if I, say, if I said I wasn't basically mainlining Weezer for the past few weeks. To Except get, for this album. Except for this ready. album to get really ready for it. Um, so that's what we'll be doing next week. Um, thank you again to Schaefer the Dark Lord for being on the Crash Chords podcast finally. And so of course the final song that we feature appropriately is um, Schaefer the Dark Lord's take on So What You Want from the record Check Your Head which I always love when artists I enjoy do covers so when I heard that on Junk Drawer I was like yeah! That and it's appropriate. Yes. <laughs> Um, he's going to, through the magic of editing, do our sign-off. 
Um, and before we, we leave today, I would like you to do our sign-off, if oh. you would be so kind. My pleasure. Music is life, and life is good. This next one is the seventh song on my favorite album. <laughs> Well, just plug me in, just like I was Eddie Harris You're eating crazy things like you would think I'm from Paris You know I get fly, you think I get high You know that I'm gone and I'ma tell you all why So tell me, who are you dissing? Maybe I'm missing the reason that you're smiling and wild And so listen, in my head, I just wanna take them down Imagination set loose and I'm gonna shake them down Let it flow like a mudslide And when I get on, I like to ride and glide I got Perception and my texture. I get props at my mention cause I vex So what you, what you, what you want? You get so funny with the money that you want. I said, where'd you get your information from, huh? You think that you can follow when revelation comes? What you want?